Xbox On. Welcome to Xbox On, a podcast with one host about one console, the Xbox One. I am said host, Jesse DeRosa, and on today's episode, we'll be talking about the latest Xbox news for the week of July 16th, 2020, including Halo 3 came to PC this week after 13 years of fan demand, Ubisoft showcased their upcoming games during their first Ubisoft Forward digital event, Xbox clarified some details regarding the Series X's velocity architecture, and more. I'd like to start this week's episode with a couple of corrections. I always like to hold myself accountable if I say something that isn't true. And this is something that I think is that needs to be addressed immediately because what I said without regard for really how it would affect this individual was really irresponsible and unprofessional of me. This is I said something the other week that could have life altering consequences and and life shattering consequences. So I just really want to make sure I make good on something bad I said last week. And it is that my coworker, who I told you, her boyfriend, uh, started getting back into the Halo games and had my coworker start playing alongside with him and kind of they're getting into the Halo games together. I told you that he said in a text conversation between him and his girlfriend relayed to me that Halo Wars 2 was a hot mess and that Halo 4 and 5 were bad games. And it appears that I actually misspoke because according to uh, my coworker, he actually said uh, that he did not like Halo 4, but he hadn't played Halo 5. So I do have to make this correction that this man has not played Halo 5. He didn't say it sucked because he hadn't played it. He he said Halo 4 wasn't good and that Halo Wars 2 was a hot mess. Now, let's, let's make one thing clear. I still have every intention of canceling this man, and I, I still think that those are some heinous words and that those opinions shouldn't be those opinions are dangerous and shouldn't be allowed to be shared in a world where we need to have an open mind about why Halo's better, why why every Halo game is great, and how there is no room for you know dangerous thoughts like like perhaps maybe some Halo games aren't as good as others. So I just want to make make it clear that yes, I misspoke, but also uh, still cancel that man. Now our second correction that we have to make is last week I opened up the show talking about the Xbox Lockhart or Series S, if you will, and kind of just some murmurings about how some people say it's just a super underpowered base model Xbox that just plays Xbox games, and some people even say it's less powerful than the Xbox One X. Those Now, while it is true that those were reports that have been going around, there's nothing substantial to really back that up, and I wasn't trying to say that's definitively what the Xbox Series S or Lockhart is, but it, it does have to be said that there is some more substantial evidence out there that shows that we, we actually probably know for a fact it is more powerful than a One X, and it's just less powerful than a Series X, of course. Um, so Lethal Migraine wrote in and said, the Series S is in fact more powerful than the Xbox One X, Jesse. From everything I've read and seen, people in the know, i.e. Tom Warren from The Verge, uh, say that the CPU is the same, it's just less GPU and no disk drive. And then Dead Captain James also chimed in and said, yeah, it will be better than the Xbox One X in every way. If they target 1080p, they can easily do 60 FPS in the same games. Uh, the horsepower you need to do 4K is crazy. Uh, 1080p is significantly less GPU power. So I just had to make this correction that because, because of course, I don't want to be spreading misinformation 
Uh, I'm more than happy to spread misinformation about certain people and their reputations, but I would not want to speak slanderous or ill of the Xbox brand in any way, shape, or form. So, yeah, let's let's make this known that I, I misspoke, or reportedly we know that the Series S is more powerful, and, and that makes sense. I I assume it's kind of like what both they're saying, that both of them are saying, especially Dead Captain James here, that basically they're targeting a machine that can play all the newest games and make them look really pretty and everything, but it's going to target you know 1080p instead of 4K, so it can still maintain great frame rates and, and pretty awesome games and powerful games and everything. You just won't have the 4K visuals. So that makes sense, especially when you consider that 4K isn't as necessary of a format as like standard HD. You know, it's like when we when we got introduced to 720p and 1080p and, and HD kind of slowly started taking over, it was a much more like prescient innovation and in, in industry standard for, you know, TVs and all that, like games started becoming HD, like the Xbox 360 and PS3. Those games were HD games. Movies started coming out in Blu-ray format. You just kind of had to have... You you couldn't just use your old tube TV and really appreciate, you know, your Xbox 360 games or your 4K movies. Although, I guess if you really really wanted to, you could hook up a... I guess you could try and use a Blu-ray player on an old tube TV. But... Or I guess not really because it doesn't have HDMI. But the point I'm trying to make is, you know, that was like a big evolution. Whereas 4K, while it is technically the next step, the next evolution, I don't think the adoption is as prescient and as needed as like the jump from, you know, your 480p to your 720, 1080p. So I think that that makes sense. You know, a lot of the market is still on regular regular 1080p TVs where they buy those cheap 4K TVs that are like kind of barely 4K TVs. Those like Black Friday $300 4K TVs that like don't really have proper HDR support or like or anything like that. So I, I get it. They're, they're trying to have two SKUs, one for the people who are like, hey, this TV is good enough. I don't need, you know, 4K QLED, Samsung, whatever. And then, you know, the 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 console that's for people who want, you know, the, the top of the line, the most powerful console ever. So just want to make that correction. And of course, that makes a lot more sense for the market. But I mean, I guess you can st- still mostly everything I was trying to say last week about the Series S or Lockhart still basically applies that it's just your skew for people who just want a cheap entry level to play Xbox games. And then the people who are like us, us diehard Xbox fans, who I assume are mostly interested in Series X. I assume if you're listening to this podcast or if you consider yourself an Xbox fan, you're probably pretty much exclusively interested in buying a Series X. I mean, although, of course, it's still interesting to know what the S is and what it looks like and and all the details of it. It's just, you know, if you're an Xbox fan, you probably want the latest, greatest, not the almost great version. Anyway, so there are those corrections. And now instead of talking about things I said wrong, we'll just start talking about feedback, comments, shoutouts, everything from the audience. Last week, I asked you guys what you thought about moving the comment section to the end of the podcast since, you know, before I did comments in the beginning of the show because earlier in the show, I know, well, almost every episode, no one commented on anything. But, you know, then eventually I start getting like a comment here, a comment there. Dead Captain James was kind enough to to throw me a bone and comment on my show back in back in an era where no one else would. And, you know, over time it grew. We got the lethal migraine on board. I started, you know, I started I started recruiting people and, and, and enticing people. I've been paying a handful of you under the table to come and comment on my YouTube videos of the podcast every week. And, and now the show's grown to a point where it's like we get a decent amount of comments and it takes up quite a bit of time at the top of the show to go through all this. So my thought was, you know, originally I did comments at the top of the show as because one, it's it's fast and easy. It's a nice little warm-up segment before you get into the news. And it's also kind of an enticing way to remind everyone listening and like, hey, don't forget to drop a comment. Or like, hey, don't forget to rate the show. But now that the comment section's 
kind of taken off enough to where it's like, you know, it takes up 30 minutes of the show. I was wondering, you know, should I put it after the news? Because most people who discover this podcast probably want, you know, the news and then the the miscellaneous segments, the comments and the games of the week and all that shit, you know, at the end. So I didn't really know where to go with that, but... The audience did speak, and it, it message received. Sarugi says, uh, I'm just a simple man with simple values. I like my beer cold and my comment sections at the beginning of the podcast. Don't make me cancel you. Apparently, that's a thing now. I'm just going to put it out there. So because of this this sole comment from Sarugi to keep the comments at the top of the show, we will continue to keep the comments there. And if you were of the mindset that putting the comments towards the end of the show would have been a, a, a beneficial change for the formatting of this of this podcast, then please do not comment to me because I gave you a chance to speak and say your piece. Please direct all comments to Sarugi from this point on. If you if you want to if you take umbrage with this decision, direct all your hate at him. Feel free to cancel him. This is I want this to be an open platform where people openly have the rights and the entitlement to ruin other people's lives and careers. So please direct all your hate at Sarugi for that decision. Now we're going to jump into some some more general questions. We got first time commenter, Mr. King Dat, uh, who says, So I've been listening to your podcast recently, mostly when I drive home for leave from the army. But I was just curious, where exactly do we put comments like the ones you bring up in the podcast? I've come to really enjoy your show and will continue to support, but I am sort of new and have no clue where all these things go. Well, thank you so much, King Dat, for commenting a couple things. Thank- I appreciate you writing in. And uh, as far as where to go to comment on the podcast, you've already found it. Really, th- this is actually an important question because this is something I failed to bring up. You know, I-, I-, I solicit every week. I say, comment, don't be shy, reply, but I never give you guys I never give you guys a place to do it. I never tell you where. Um, all I ever do is bitch and moan and ask you to rate me on iTunes. So this is a good question, and you've already kind of answered it because you commented on YouTube, which is pretty much the only place I pull comments from. There is no official place. This show doesn't. I don't. I don't know how other podcasts do it. I know a lot of shows have like they'll have like a Patreon, and like Patreon subscribers will comment and ask questions on Patreon, and that's where you pull questions from. Obviously, the show doesn't have a Patreon, so that's not where you direct your questions, comments, concerns. So what I kind of do is I just follow comments wherever I get them, and then throw them all together and put them on here so predominantly youtube has been the default platform i guess just because that's where most of the people who comment regularly have been commenting so i guess that's kind of our default for now uh if you guys want to write into email i guess you could but i'm i don't have a i don't have a podcast email so i guess it's not an option at the moment so yeah i guess youtube is your best bet i've had example i've had i've had instances of where like someone's texting like my friend will text me a question i'll use that as a question or comment or shout out or whatever or like someone tweets at me so i'll use that tweet but that's very unlikely it's predominantly youtube so that's that's the place to answer your question really appreciate your support and listen to the show and welcome aboard to xbox on this is not you subscribing to the best and most informative xbox podcast on the internet, but it may be the most mind-numbing and off-topic and offensive Xbox podcast, so welcome aboard. Glad to have you here. Our next comment's from my brother, Josiah, who says, you would probably like Dishonored. It fits perfectly with your idea of player agency. Corvo's personality and intentions are determined entirely by your actions, as well as the shape of the world around you. Shut up and don't tell me what I'd like to play. I know what i like to play, and I don't want to play Dishonored. Our next comment comes from Lethal Migraine. Um, this is really where we get to the, the crux of this week's episode, which is where, at the end of last week, I said burritos or tacos, and some of you guys some of you guys actually came in and, and really swept, swept in with some really important responses. We got Lethal Migraine saying, burritos or tacos? Both. 
There, uh, there's a fantastic 24-hour Mexican restaurant in my area. My usual order is two chicken tacos. Their tacos are on the small side, but damn good. And some sort of burrito. Now, that is a great answer right there because, first of all, I don't know if you put the whole their tacos are on the small side as like a don't call me a fat ass. I know I get two tacos and a burrito. Listen, you don't got to defend your eating habits because I'm the guy who will eat an entire fucking frozen pizza and, and call it a snack. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the same way. If I'm if I'm going to like an actual Mexican restaurant or even like just Taco Bell or Del Taco, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm going to get a handful of tacos, a burrito, Crunchwrap Supreme. I'm going to get a nice variety. I'm going to get a sample menu and I'm always just going to convince myself, well, the person at the drive-thru, you know, I'm just, just they probably just think I'm ordering for like a couple friends or something, you know, I'm bringing food home for the family, but no, it's all just for me and then I'll just sit there in the parking lot and eat it all. So you don't have, you don't have to defend yourself on your your portion control, but uh, I do like that answer. I, I gave you an either or and you looked for a third option and you said both and I really respect that. I love it. That's realistically, that's probably me too. It's also just getting both because why would I why would I choose when I can just continue to be a glutton our next one comes from Henley Merrill who I don't think has ever commented before and he says uh, burritos El Pastor or steak I love burritos what do you drink with your burritos or tacos I prefer Negra Modelo great show as always so thank you Henley for commenting in and what a, what an excellent way to kick things off by telling me about your burrito versus taco preferences now if I do have to pick just one, I think I'm going to be on board with you and say burritos, but it really is it, it really is like picking children, isn't it? But El Pastor or steak, if I'm going to like a legit Mexican restaurant, I'm going I'm I'm also probably choosing El Pastor or steak, but I mean if I'm going like fucking Del Taco or something, I'm getting chicken because I don't trust fast food steak. Um and I, uh, I'm of the mindset. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to like a like a like a something some gringo ass uh, welcome to Moe's kind of place. Probably still going with chicken, but occasionally go for the steak. But if you're going to like a real, real deal place, yeah, the El Pastor is the shit. Now, as far as what I drink with my my burritos or my tacos, listen, I'll I'll be honest with you. I, I've this is a great question because it's excellent opportunity for me to start ranting about my drink preferences, which is you know an, an excellent way for me to avoid talking about Xbox for another thirty minutes. I may have mentioned it on the show before. My my personal my personal drink of preference actually is water, and and I always that always gets away from me because because I want to say Mountain Dew, um, but I, I try to drink water as much as possible. I'm such a disgusting, unhealthy person in terms of my eating and exercising habits. That's like, is if there's just at least one thing I can do that's consistent, that's healthy for me, it's like, why can't I just drink water all the time? You know, cause water kind of flushes you out, cleans your body, keeps your pee clean, all that kind of shit. It's like, it's just like one super easy, like essential way to kind of even remotely take care of your body. So I try to drink water a hundred percent. And that was really easy for me. Cause I grew up in a house where Water was pretty much the only option for drink. But every now and again, I'll fall down the rabbit hole. I'm a massive Mountain Dew fan. I follow the Mountain Dew subreddit. I, 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 I'm in like fan communities for Mountain Dew. I have like Mountain Dew merchandise. Every time a new flavor comes out, I collect it. I have a collection of Mountain Dew cans of like flavors that were limited time only. I have I have cans of Mountain Dew flavors that have been that have been like extinct for like 12 years. Like it's it's a serious thing. And I really do love Mountain Dew, not only because I love the drink, uh, but also because I just love kind of the fandom and the, I love, I love how it's kind of spits in the face. It's like more, I love how it's, it's just kind of so typical. It's like, Oh man, typical, like Xbox dude loves Doritos, Mountain Dew and Halo and all that shit. It's like, damn right. I am. And I just, I like kind of owning that and unironically wearing the Mountain Dew banner, uh, proudly on my sleeve. So 
Mountain Dew would be my go-to if I were going to get outside the realm of water and, and get into something else. Um, but I've been trying to stay away from soda. I go through, I, I crash and burn every now and again. I'll go through a little soda phase for a couple of weeks, but I've been off the stuff for a while now and I've been mostly just drinking water. So that's my default. Now, as far as, as, far as alcohol is concerned, I'm really not much of a drinker. Me and my girlfriend both don't, don't really drink. We don't, we don't go out of our way to like order drinks if we go out to dinner. Or we don't keep alcohol in, in the in the house at all. But I, I worked in restaurants for a very long time, so sooner or later I was I was forced to you know eventually learn learn wine menus. And I worked in Japanese restaurants, so I had to learn uh, sake and Japanese beer and, and Japanese whiskey and things like that. So I have a knowledge of of alcohol and I have experience with it, but it's really just not my thing. If I absolutely like on rare occasion, like back in the day, especially when I worked in restaurants, if we're like getting off a shift at 2 a.m. and like hitting up El Rey Del Taco, which is this 24-hour uh, Mexican restaurant in Atlanta where I used to live. Yeah, sure, I'll get... If I have to have a beer, my, my default's probably going to be something pretty, like, heavy and not too bitter, something like a, like, weedy, something like a blue moon or something, but I'm not much of a drinker, so... Yeah, number one's gonna be water. If I'm feeling weak, it's Mountain Dew, and if and if I'm if I'm just having like a, a obligatory beer or something to kind of socially drink with the group, then yeah, maybe like a Blue Moon or something, like a Heineken or something. But that's that's yeah. Usually with burritos, it's it's the water. I think I think the only the only food I associate with like alcohol is like Korean barbecue, and that's because I don't know going out to eat like Korean barbecue with like my Korean coworkers at my old job. It's like that's just such a big part of the experience. Is is like the Korean beers and the, in the sochu and all that with the Korean barbecue. So that's really my only experience with that, but uh, water. So there's my whole tangent on, on drinking and, and drinks of preference as pertains to burritos where I mostly didn't talk about burritos at all. So our next question here, or our next comment here, keeping with the burritos versus tacos argument, my brother Josiah, he says, not even a question, tacos. He was the only one that was like so definitively like tacos, fuck you. Actually, that's not true. Our next comment's from Sarugi, who says, burritos versus tacos. I'm a soft shell taco guy, so I'll just say that's the best of both worlds. So... We got we got two for two for tacos here. So let's let's tally this up. We got Lethal Migraine who kind of cheats. He says both. And then we got Henley who says burritos. And then we got Josiah who says tacos and Sarugi who says tacos. So actually I guess tacos is winning, but if I had to weigh in and I can only pick one, I'm gonna pick burritos, which and that's not to tie it up and be an asshole. That's just because I'm actually gonna genuinely pick burritos. So with lethal migraines two for one, that puts us at a tie. So please feel free to to write in and tell me tacos or burritos. Help break the tie. Someone please. See, here's here's the thing about tacos. And Sarugi, I agree with you. If I'm if I'm going tacos, it's soft shell over hard shell so i'm a gringo and it's in the same way that i'm not afraid to tell you i like mountain dew xbox and halo in the same breath i'm not afraid to tell you that i'm a soft shell flour tortilla guy over the over the traditional corn tortilla i understand you like a real taco is a corn tortilla you put like you put like some el pastor some some onions some cilantro it's a very very simple uh list of things it's not like a taco bell thing where you put like grilled cheese seven sauces a bunch of sour cream and shit on it that's not a real taco i get that but i'm not going to try to lie to you and tell you i i i didn't grow up in like white suburban America. I, I love the Taco Bell, Del Taco, Tex-Mex atrocities that we consider tacos, you know, we, the collective American perception of like whitewashed tacos. I love that, that shit so much. Yeah, I, 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 when it comes to tacos, that's what I spring for is like the Taco Bell, like Taco Supreme, flour, tortilla, soft shell, perfect every time. But if, but I agree, it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like cheating, right? Cause like a flour, a soft shell flour tortilla 
is like borderline just like a burrito that isn't wrapped properly. So it's like, okay, but then, then I would go for the burrito because with the burrito, you can get some rice and some beans thrown in there and you can get even more toppings. You can just make a whole mess out of it. I, I actually quite enjoy Qdoba. It's a, it's a Moe's like restaurant. I really enjoy getting all their crap and putting like melted cheese all over that shit and just, and just making it, making it an abomination of a meal. It's uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to lean on the side of burritos. I think there's room for everything. I, I do enjoy everything down from like the legit corn tortilla tacos all the way up to like, you know, monstrous burritos that get all over your hands and face. But there's room for all, but if I have to pick just one, I'm, I'm going to go team burrito on this one. So please write in. And if you, if you object to anything I said or, or, or to the final tie that we we've come to with the burritos versus tacos, perhaps you say, fuck you chalupas should win. Or maybe, I don't know. That is where we stand on the food thing. Now going back into some comments that are kind of remotely video game related, we're going to talk about that whole story last week about video game prices going up. Now this sparked some this sparked some uh, some 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 not backlash but some alternating opinions which I appreciate. But first we'll start with the only person who really agreed with where I stood or seemed like they did was OG Madman who said, "I can stand an extra $10 for Halo Infinite. Hell, I thought Master Chief Collection was a steal for 60 when it came out." I agree. The price raise makes Game Pass that much better a deal, especially when we get them the day they release. So that's really the key part of this argument for the Xbox community. And and I agree pre- basically with every, I mean, you didn't get really into it enough to know if you agreed or disagreed. So sorry to assume your opinion, but it seems like you, you kind of at least maybe not, maybe you're not in favor of it, but at least understand where it comes from. And I agree. Master Chief Collection at 60 bucks is a steal, especially considering if you bought it at launch, when, when ODST came out, you then got that. And I know it was like an uh, apology for the game being broken, but it's like, you know, you get a bunch of Halo games all at once, and then, you know, now when you look at what you get when you buy Master Chief Collection with, with Reach and everything, and it's like, it's a it's a fucking steal of a game, of a package, but, I mean, there's just so many examples of, of, of games where it's like, I, I could understand why you charge a little more for this, I, and that's why I call that Red Dead Redemption 2, but I also understand some other opinions, which we'll get into in a minute. Now, I, as for your point about Game Pass, I think that's also key in, in regards to Xbox because, you know, if people want to bitch and moan about, wow, games are now $70, fuck, 60 was already too much for me, and then they go, well, I could just pay 15 bucks a month and I'll have Xbox Live and Game Pass. You know, I already have a year of Xbox Live, I'll just pay 10 bucks a month and get Game Pass. And it's like, well, there you go. Now you're getting every Xbox game day one. It's just there, it's Netflix style. But keep in mind... I'm very confident that Xbox Game Pass, as it continues to evolve and as people continue to become dependent on it, it's going to have a Netflix cycle where, you know, people are going to people are going to get hooked on it and just kind of forget that's a recurring monthly payment. And then Microsoft's going to announce in a few years, hey, we're bumping the price by five dollars a month or whatever it is. And then people are going to be like, oh, that's ridiculous. But they're going to just kind of let it slide anyway, because it's like. What are you going to do when you're so dependent on this service that you don't really have much of an option? I I think that's kind of inevitable for Game Pass because, I mean, we don't really know, or at least I don't know, but I can't assume the amount of money they're making on Game Pass is just, like, enough for them to just get every third-party partnership deal they could possibly imagine. Plus, you know, these this is ostensibly the money that's funding first-party game development because as as Game Pass continues to grow and increase in popularity, we're going to see the sale of, like, 
of of Xbox first party games decline, right? We're gonna see we're gonna start seeing fewer people buying Halo Infinite, more people just playing it because they they're Game Pass subscribers, you know, and that's that's to be expected. But as Game Pass becomes the main revenue stream for first party game development and funding and everything, I think inevitably we're gonna have to see that price come up a little bit. Um, I mean, I mean, if you're, if you're really being honest and critical about Game Pass, isn't that kind of already evident? That's like Game Pass is a it's a great library and usually has pretty great games, but it's not like a massive Netflix or Hulu length library, right? And with a little bit more money, you think Microsoft could probably justify throwing some more money at some other third parties to get more games on the platform, as well as, you know, fund their projects and things like that. Not that Microsoft doesn't have the money without the price increase, but, you know, you're trying to run a business. You You, you need... You need Game Pass to be a pretty lucrative thing if you're going to continue to fund game game development and get third-party games on your platform. You know, you're going to need need a lot of money to really justify making that move. So to kind of play devil's advocate or to show a different perspective, at least on this whole story, Lethal Migraine wrote in with a little, a little bit of a long one. He goes, game price story, it's appalling. There's absolutely no reason to raise the price of video games. Any publisher that thinks game prices should increase is just being greedy. There's never been more games more gamers in the history of gaming. Also, publishers have never made more profit in the history of gaming. The reality is, more and more games are being sold digitally. Publishers are saving boatloads of cash by not having to package, ship, or store anything. Red Dead Redemption 2 is one of the most expensive games ever made, yes, and the game became extreme, it became profitable after only three days. Not only is there no justification for games going up by 10 bucks, they should actually be going down by $10. As for the development costs, there's no reason at all a game like Assassin's Creed or Halo or COD or anything Rockstar needs uh, to have 800 to 1,000 people working on it. Just make better development tools. But saying all that, I have no great need or desire to play games at launch and will continue to wait for a month until games are on sale. I can afford new games, but with Game Pass, I have no reason or motivation uh, not to wait. If publishers are going to be greedy, then they can rob other gamers, but not me. This is this is a crazy one because I actually agree with and disagree with what Lethal Migraine is saying here on so many levels. And we'll get into that, but first, I, just to give you proper context, let me just read everything that was said because Sarugi responded and then I responded. And I don't even remember what I said, but I'll read it anyway after Sarugi's comment. Sarugi says, absolutely spot on in response to Lethal Migraine. He goes, more gamers now than ever before, so any quote, increased cost of manufacture is well and truly offset by the increased number of gamers, not to mention every form of MTX under the sun. Final Fantasy VII Remake was the last full-priced game I purchased and, and incidentally was the first game I've paid full price for in years. If it's not on sale, it's not on my library. And then I came in and said, I actually think you raise an important point. When gamers were when games were more expensive in the SNES and 64 days, for example, gaming was a much smaller industry. It's hard for me not to take some of your other points, though. It's hard for me to take some of your other points, though, because I don't have the insider experience or knowledge to know if the dev team sizing could be shrunk with better tools. Also, the biggest problem is the constant pressure to make every game the biggest and longest game you've ever played. I think the topic of scale and scope is maybe an important part of the conversation that I should have brought up. Okay, so that's what I said. All right. So yeah, some of that I want to address. There's there's a lot in what Lethal Migraine says here, and it's, it seems like Sarugi kind of kind of backs what he's saying. But he, but here's here's the crux of it all. It's that it's that yes, it's a really important point to note that the amount of gamers out there and the amount of copies of games being sold is far greater than it's ever been. You know, the the number of like active ga- you think about like a console like the PlayStation One that sold about a million units. You think like the N64 sold about like. 
20, 24, 26 million units or something like that. The N64 really didn't do that well, despite what the internet wants you to think about nostalgia. Um, and then, like, the Sega Dreamcast sold, like, f- what was it, like, like 14 million units or something like that. It bombed. And so you think about, like, that generation in particular, and you're like, I mean, I know that's leaving out the PC market, which is a massive part of it, but it's like, just in the console space alone, it's like, that's really not that many gamers compared to, fast forward to, the Xbox 360 PS3 generation where you had like, it was something like 90 something close to 100 million PS3 sold, 80 something close to 90 million Xbox 360 sold. And then what, 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 what were the Wii sales? It was like the Wii sold like a hundred and it was like a hundred million units or something like that. I could be, I could be so far off, but it's like, you look at that generation and then not to mention how well DS and everything sold. And it's like the home console market grew substantially in like the 10 years between like PS one and PS three. Right. Or I guess, you know, in between those two generations at least. And, it's like, okay, well, that's a really good point because there are more gamers buying games than ever before. And game launches were also a bigger thing, right? Because back in the day, you think about, think about like the big games where we regard as like the absolute pinnacle of like the the PlayStation 1. You think of games like Metal Gear Solid 1 or Siphon Filter or like Crash Bandicoot. It's like, okay, all those games were so relatively small and sold so poorly by comparison of like, when you think about like the biggest PlayStation 4 games or something, when you think about like Spider-Man and Uncharted 4 and Last of Us, these games are selling millions and millions of more units than these PS1 games. So it's like, yes, there are more players in the home console space. There are more units of games being sold in the home console space, especially for these big games and these like these these big tentpole series. So that all makes perfect sense to me. But also with the increase in players and in copies sold, there's the increase in development time in team sizes. So your whole point about your your whole point about they can they need to improve. You know there needs to be fewer people on dev teams and they need better development tools to help reduce the size of a team. I can't speak to this either way. I don't know if you're right, if you're wrong, and I don't think it's a matter of right or wrong. I'm sure there's I'm sure there's a good amount of truth to what you're saying here, but it's just I don't personally know how much of this could be resolved from better development tools. I'm sure we could improve the way we make games and, and the speed at which we make games and the ease and the ability to, to make games quicker um, with better development tools, and that could reduce staffing. I'm sure 100% all of that is true, but would it be substantial enough to be like, oh, well, that what, what that's what was killing our bottom line. That's what was making games so expensive, and I don't know that that's the the case. And I don't I don't believe it is. If I had to if I had to just take take a guess based on my hunch, I would guess that it could help improve things, but it wouldn't be enough to justify what's going on here. So so there's that, and then there's also the and then there's also the point of what you're saying here, which is that you don't you don't even buy games when they first come out. You wait until they they go on sale and you buy them that way, and you let all the suckers pay sixty bucks up front, knowing full well in three to six weeks that game's going to be like forty bucks on Amazon or some shit like that. And that's a good point. I I've actually tried to adopt that those kind of spending habits a lot in recent years as well, with rare exception, you know, like a game like. Uh, like disintegration where I intentionally bought it the second it came out because I wanted to support that small developer. Yeah, I try I try to do the same otherwise, you know, unless it's something like Halo and I just need to play it now where I, I try to mostly wait for games to drop a little bit in price or come to Game Pass if it's one of those games where you can just tell it's coming to Game Pass sooner or later. I just don't see all that as being enough to justify what's happening here. So at the end of the day, I think a really important thing here that's not being mentioned is like we, we have to be honest about 
you know, what the games industry is. At the end of the day, your Activisions, your Microsofts, your Sonys, your Ubisofts, it doesn't matter how much you like some of these companies or hate some of these companies. At the end of the day, these are all businesses. They're all trying to make a profit. And when you're a publicly traded company like Activision or, or 2K, your job is to make sure that every year you make more money than you made the last year. And that's just the nature of the business that's and you can complain about that or hate it or disagree with it and that's totally fine but at the end of the day that's what it's about so it's it's about risk and reward so it's like yeah sure 2k made you know 2k and rockstar made red dead redemption 2 profitable in three days and that's a game that took like a decade or, or almost a decade to make you know it's super expensive massive team worked on it super massive budget and the game's been profitable since you know since 72 hours after it came out and hit the market. And it's been a pretty great sell ever since. We see it on MPD charts all the time. So I get what you're saying. It's like they don't they don't need to be they don't need to be bumping the price of that game because even though it was an extremely expensive game to make and even though you know it's it was even though the dev team was massive and all these things, it's like they knew they were going to make their money back and they did and they're still profiting like crazy off that game to this day now that it's even like two and a half years old. So I get I get all of that. But again, it's, it's one of those things like take into consideration what inflation has done to the price of gaming. Take into consideration what the ba- what the buying power of $70 gets you in 2020 versus the buying power of what $70 would have gotten you in 2020 versus in like 2006 when when games first kind of became 60 bucks you got to take all these factors in consideration and think about what it's like if your job is to make your company more profitable if you're 2k if you're activision if you're ea you're going wow we need to make these games more expensive even if it's only by 10 bucks because that really just helps match you know the price of a game in 2020 with what it was 10 12 years ago and it's important that we do that because we're trying to bring in money here we're trying to make every year more profitable than the last we're trying to grow our business and and i understand it's like a it sound it, it falls on deaf ears it's like crocodile tears right to all of us gamers who are like just regular middle class joes who are just like are you fucking kidding me the last thing activision needs is more money right again it's like this is they're, these people aren't going to be willing to put down the money and take the risk financially on big budget games if they can't guarantee better profits, faster profits. It's, it's Sometimes it's not even about will this game make its money back. It's about how fast will we make this game's money back? How fast will it break sales records? How fast will it take for us to you know feel like three years and three hundred million dollars was a was a good enough investment? And it, it sounds so like it sounds so trivial and stupid and just hellacious. It sounds like something we can't even begin to fathom as people who most of us not don't make this kind of money and don't deal with these kinds of companies and these kinds of finances. But at the end of the day, this is what these companies are here to do is to bring in the money. And and if you can get away with bumping the price to, to seventy dollars because because the buying power and the inflation kind of justifies it, then I think they're going to do it. And I, it's it's just not surprising to me is all I'm saying. So I'm, I'm not saying that you are wrong to be upset about this. And I'm not saying that you're wrong to think this is not a good idea or whatever. It's just, it just is what it is, you know? And I think you just have to be at least honest and realistic about the fact that this is kind of an inevitable thing no matter what. And as, as far as your, your point about game prices going down by $10, I think that one I will just straight up disagree with because I just I just don't see that as plausible. This is the whole reason why games 
do the free to play thing or the season passes and the battle passes and all this shit and the skins and the DLC is because they're looking for new ways to monetize games so they don't have to bump it to $70 to $80. And yeah, and I think a, a lot of that started as like, we need another source of income because games games are being sold too cheap. And then it turned into a thing in a lot of cases where it was like, wow, there's a lot of money to be made off this thing. Let's just try to double dip and try to sell a game for 60 bucks and then still ask for in-app purchases. I was complaining about that just a few weeks ago when I played Far Cry New Dawn. It's a bullshit game that came out for $40 and then basically lets you get all the way to the end of the game and then paywalls you and says, you can either grind for the next 20 hours to get what you need to fight the last boss or you can give us money right now. And I just said, fuck it and uninstalled the game. So I understand there are examples of of developers, in this case Ubisoft, being disgusting and, and really just really abusing this, this notion of like, how to monetize games, but we're kind of caught in this in this time period of like exploring the waters and testing the market and seeing what are gamers willing to pay for, what do they like, what do they not like, how can we make this as lucrative as possible without compromising the integrity of our brand and our games, and so we're going to see a lot of experimental types like Far Cry New Dawn because we these companies need to figure out what works and what doesn't, and if you don't like games being more expensive, then don't buy games that are more expensive. I think Lethal Migraine's doing a pretty good job of playing his role because he says here, like, I don't buy games when they first came out, come out. I wait a couple weeks, let them drop by 20, 30 percent in cost and then I buy them then and that's a pretty reasonable thing to do but you know it's it's at the end of the day it's like you can't really begrudge a publisher or a developer for doing something that makes them money like if if people are just gonna put out the money then just don't be surprised that that these guys are gonna try to pull these moves to to, to monetize in new ways and and I, I think this thing these things will kind of figure themselves out I, again as I said last week remember 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 at the beginning of the generation where like every game had a season pa- had a season pass where it was like here are the three DLCs that we've roadmapped and here's when you'll get them and what they'll have in a general sense and pre-order now for 20 30 bucks blah 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 and now you you really rarely see that that's not as common and it's it's kind of a thing that's only done deliberately for games where publishers and developers feel strongly that that's the right route to take. And I think we've seen that kind of mature a little bit, right? But we're still kind of in the in the growing pains stages of of what to do with like in-app purchases and skins and some of these battle passes and things of that nature where we're still just kind of figuring it out. And sometimes you get games like Far Cry New Dawn that trick you into thinking you're getting a good good game, but then just like take off the mask in the last part of the game and and say, "Haha, surprise, I was actually an iPhone game this whole time." So, we're going to get burned a little bit. We're going to see some unsavory practices being tried out here and there but at the end of the at the end of the day this is this is going to be a thing where like people are probably going to put up with 70 dollar games and and put out the money and still pre-order and still buy day one so i think that's going to stick if you really take umbrage with the way some games are being monetized just don't support it financially and i know it's it's kind of a bullshit cop-out answer i get it it's like it's like if you're someone who's like, oh, I hate Democrats and Republicans and I don't want to vote for either one of them. They're like, well, then just vote third party. It's like, well, sure, yeah, you're making the right move, but you know damn well in the back of your head that third party's never going to fucking win. So you're just always going to be part of a losing battle by doing the right thing morally, but knowing that, you know, you're never going to live to see the, the 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 page turn or the or the story, you know, the, the script kind of flip or anything, so to speak. So I, I get that. But again, I, I'll just I'll just leave it with this. These are companies, they're in the business of making money, they're going to do unsavory shit, they're going to try to test the waters and see how much they can get away with to make as much money as possible, and at the end of the day, if people put down the money and profits go up and people are still enjoying the games, then this is going to become 
uh, I hate to say this because I'm so tired of this term, the new normal, um, but, you know, in, in regards to game pricing, not not COVID. Anyway, last comments. I told you, here we are. We're four hours in. And we're just getting into the last comments. This is another, another little comment debate, a little comment a story that went on a little long, but I, I want to talk about this. This is about this is about the WB uh, sale and Microsoft's potential interest in buying WB games. Where Sarugi comments with a, with a little bit of a long one. He says, regarding the WB game sales, unless AT and T is willing to sell the studios off piecemeal, I don't think Microsoft would drop four billion to purchase everything. My understanding limited to what I have listened to from a few other podcasts and from the inter- internet articles. By the way, Sarugi, fuck you for listening to other podcasts. Just kidding. It is that the licenses would essentially just be le- uh, leased out so that AT&T could continue to collect revenue from anything being put out. There's also the issue with a purchase with a purchase that size. The influx of such a massive number of new employees would suddenly uh, was suddenly being added to the books. There would surely be a need to downsize some staff to avoid the new personal overlapping duties uh, with current employees. And it would be a PR nightmare to make a $4 billion acquisition just to lay off staff, especially in this economic climate. On the topic of those WB game franchises with long-running sequels becoming console exclusives, I would almost guarantee that if Sony were in the position to make future sequels console exclusives, those asshats would do that in a heartbeat. In my opinion, let Ubisoft take the lot so they can give all the games... in my opinion, let Ubisoft take the lot so that they can give all those games tiered loot systems and towers to climb to unlock more of the map. So, that was a great comment. And I, you gotta break it down a little bit because there's obviously different different parts to it. But first of all, I I think that's an interesting point that that they might be piecemealing like the sale, which I haven't. Again, I I try not to consume too much games media. I try to consume enough that I know the current news and I can talk about it on my show, but not enough to where I'm I'm being influenced by too many op eds and things like that because. I just want to say what I had to say, whether I sound like I'm like I'm adding to the conversation or not. I just want it to be all my own whatever. So I haven't personally heard anything about this being a thing where they're they're willing to sell. You know, this studio goes to this buyer, this studio goes to this buyer. Um, that's an interesting proposition, but it also sounds like it also sounds like a like a time consuming one. Like if you're trying to offset debt, my assumption would be that you just try to sell the whole lot to the highest bidder, right? Because what happens when you're left with like a studio here or there and you're just like, okay, well we weren't really looking to hang on to these guys, but now, you know, no one was interested in buying avalanche, but people jumped at the chance to buy, to buy Rocksteady or whatever. So interesting proposition, but I don't really, I don't really know that that's what they're doing. My assumption is that if Microsoft's in this to, to buy, they're, they're going to buy the whole lot now, as opposed to uh, now in regards to the whole thing about the licenses, that makes a lot more sense to me is that AT&T would retain the IP they would just sell the studios and then they would be like, okay, well you can continue to license it. But here's, here's the stipulation with that. Again, is if you're going to spend $4 billion or you're going to put out this kind of money, you're not going to buy this shit without the IP because I don't think, you know, with the exception of like nether realm with mortal Kombat, which is an IP that nether realm owns with the, yeah, with the exception of mortal Kombat, you know, a uh, nether realm owned IP. I don't, I just don't see why you would want to, put this kind of money down and then not get the IPs they're working on. Like Rocksteady built their name on making DC games. So like, why would you buy Rocksteady and be like, Oh, but you can't make a DC game. You can't make a Batman game. Go make something new. I just feel like it's a lot of, it's a, it'd be a lot of risk taking on a lot of new studios for a whole lot of money to not get any of these fucking licenses. And I just, I just don't know how I feel about that. I don't, I don't think that's a risk, not even so much a risk. I just don't think that's a, 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 
a purchase Microsoft would think is is really you know valuable or worth the money. Here's 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 what I will say. I've I've thought about this a little more, and I don't know if I commented on. It. I know this this thread goes on a little longer, but here's the thing: is the only re- I, I I at first I was saying I don't think Microsoft's a good buyer for this because they already bought a bunch of studios. Let's see what these guys can do before they start buying more studios. But then I thought about it a little further, and I was like, well, wait a minute. I'm comparing Microsoft's first-party strategy way too much to PlayStation, and it doesn't. They don't need to parallel because they don't. Because PlayStation's thing right now is let's continue to do the same thing we've always fucking done because it's always made money, right? Let's continue to just do a new generation, fuck backwards compatibility, brand new games. They're all first person. They're all third person, story-driven action games that are super serious and gritty and realistic looking. And we'll just do that for another generation and win. And everyone will say Xbox sucks because it's worked for us this far, right? And so I get that. That's what that's what PlayStation's good at. It works for them. They're gonna keep with it. Microsoft's not doing what PlayStation's doing because what what PlayStation's doing doesn't work for Microsoft. And when Microsoft tries to compete toe to toe with what PlayStation does, it blows up in their face. I mean, look at the Xbox One generation. So why is why would Microsoft want to buy all these studios when they already just bought a whole bunch of studios that haven't even really put out new games yet? Well, it's about Game Pass because Microsoft isn't looking at well, we need more studios so we can put out more first party games every year and sell them for sixty bucks so we can have you know all of our all of our God of War and Last of Us competitors. It's like, no, they're like Netflix. They're not like Sony. They're trying to support their Netflix platform. Remember when Netflix first became like a web streaming service and most of what you saw on Netflix was like like movies from other studios and TV shows that have been on various channels for years in syndication. And it was like Hulu, right? It's like you watch TV shows and movies you've heard of or seen before, right? And then at some point, Netflix was like, all right, introducing the Netflix original. And then I was like, oh, Netflix makes their own shows now? Okay, that's interesting. And then some of them were good. People really liked Orange is the New Black. They bought Arrested Development, tried to bring that show back and killed it because they did an awful job with it. But you get the ideas. They were like, okay, well, here's this show and this show. And of course, you know, now we know, oh my God, uh, the Stranger Things and all that kid that the kids with the bicycles it's oh it's a great deal so now nowadays people think of netflix and it's like the netflix originals are the main attraction it's not the supplemental oh what's this thing they're trying it's like you know what going to netflix to watch like king of the hill or malcolm in the middle like you know the things i would use netflix for that's not what you do with netflix that's what that's what hulu is for netflix is all about we have this streaming service and we have all these third-party movies these uh uh other studio owned movies and TV shows on here. But the thing that the the real anchor, the real reason why you subscribe and stay here is for the exclusive content. Because yeah, a show like Jesse might end his Netflix subscription if the King of the Hill license or, or agreement expires with Netflix and then it goes to Hulu. But if we have a Hulu original show that's so compelling or a Netflix original show that's so compelling, he might stay with us because you're not going to get a Netflix original anywhere other than Netflix. And that's what Microsoft's doing here. It's a, sorry for the long-winded comparison, but that's that's what they're doing here. Is it's, this isn't this isn't about competing with Sony in $60 first person ex, or first first party exclusives. This is about building themselves to be the next Netflix but for video games. And so why would Microsoft acquire even more studios when they just got a bunch of, stu- of studios because like Netflix 
They need to throw a bunch of money at a bunch of different teams and see what sticks. They need to have a bunch of exclusive content so that when, you know, Brothers, A Tale of Two so that when, you know, I, I don't know, World War Z or fucking Plague Tale Innocence or whatever leaves Game Pass but then shows up on EA Access or whatever these other services are, you will go, oh, well, I'm still not going to unsubscribe to Game Pass because only on Game Pass can I get grounded in Microsoft or in Halo and Gears of War and all these all these Xbox exclusives. So the more studios they have making Xbox-owned exclusive content for Game Pass, the more reason or the more the, the, the more difficult it will be for Game Pass subscribers to ever jump platform or ever stop sub- subscribing when, you know, inevitably third-party games and, and things like that leave Game Pass and go to other services and kind of bounce around. And so that's really what this is all about is, it, again, so it's like maybe Microsoft does want to buy all these studios and continue to make multi-platform Batman games and Mortal Kombat games. But again, the thing is going to be, well you either buy it for $70 on your PlayStation five or you just subscribe to game pass. And there it is because it's an Xbox game or maybe it's exclusive to Xbox. And, and, and the real benefit is you got to have Xbox game pass. If you want to play Batman Arkham Asylum seven, the return of Batman's brother, bat boy. So whatever. So it's, it's one of those things where it's about getting people hooked on your service and you need to do that with, with, a wealth of content and it's going to be like Netflix. Some of it's going to suck. Some of it's going to not stick. We're going to get some shitty Netflix shows. We're going to get a Joel McHale show, but eventually we're going to get our stranger things, which is probably just halo infinite. I I don't know. I've been thinking about it in that sense. And in that sense, I'm like, well, maybe it makes perfect sense for Xbox to buy WB. So very long winded, Response to that, I'm not done yet because a lethal migraine comes in. He says, I'm going to have to disagree in in response to Sarugi. He says, the last thing the industry needs is to have uh, some of its best devs forced to make shovelware due to uh, the greed of EA, Activision, or Take-Two, or even worse, stuck making games for a company and an ecosystem nobody wants to join, like Amazon or Google. He says, next point, Xbox and, and Microsoft uh, will be buying more devs because they want Game Pass to be the Netflix of gaming. Fuck. All right, I wish I read this first. Now I feel like I just stole Lethal Migraine's Thunder. And while the service has made great progress, having WB Studios making a bunch of games along with 15-plus studios Xbox already has, this is a fantastic business opportunity. Another thing is Ed Boon's uh, wet dream to make another Mortal Kombat vs. Killer Instinct game. Or to make a Mortal Kombat vs. Killer Instinct game. I feel like I should have read this first because now I feel like I subconsciously aped what Lethal Migraine said. And so I do apologize for that. Let's 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 be sure to give all that Netflix uh, Game Pass par- uh, paralleling to all the credit of that to Lethal Migraine. But then he also finishes up with, Never in the history of gaming has that level of talent and group of AAA studios been packed together and sold on the open market and no other company in gaming and very few companies worldwide have the cash available to make them or to take them like Microsoft and Xbox. Uh, Microsoft at last check had over $125 billion of cash on hand. 4 billion is a small price to pay. Xbox has its own publishing arm. So maybe the publishing arm of WB would be laid off, but more likely reassigned within Microsoft. There are downsides to the purchase of Xbox. Both of you talk about the kind of, merging of these two things there's no doubt that if microsoft buys this some someone's getting laid off things are merging people are going to be forced into roles a lot of people are going to opt to leave take severance packages or something like that and in in ditch i don't think this is one of those all, all people just comfortably transition over to the new thing there's going to be a lot of overlap with well microsoft already has this they don't need that um but still i but still i, I i'm of the mindset that this is this is a thing that's best 
kept for a, an Activision. I think, honestly, at the end of the day, these studios and these properties are best kept for an Activision uh, sort, where Activision, usually Activision does a pretty good job of making sure games come out at a consistent pace and that you get a thing you like often enough. You know, Rocksteady hasn't made a game in a very long time, but if they were an Activision team, you'd be getting pretty regular Batman games from them. And then when those stop selling, you get Suicide Squad games from them pretty regularly. Whatever the case may be, the point is I think Activision, these studios seem kind of like Activision S studios to begin with. And I think that Activision would manage these studios well and kind of squeeze a lot of value and talent out of these guys even though you know at the end of the day i'd ideally like for these guys to stay independent and, and keep doing what they're doing under at&t and wb but that's obviously not going to happen so and my personal desire my selfish want is for this all to kind of go to activision because i still think with microsoft this is a hairy move where it's like man i just no matter what decision is made this is going to fuck someone over right let's just say microsoft does buy this it's either going to suck that these third-party games are now exclusive to xbox which again it's not even about like not being a dick to playstation gamers it's just like i want to see xbox make unique cool stuff that's exclusive from the ground up rather than just having to ape shit that you know everyone was already enjoying on multi-platform on on other platforms so there's that there's also the thing of like well do they get the ips do they not and it's a whole fucking headache in and of itself and i just again i just don't think you're going to spend four billion dollars without those ips and i don't think you're interested in this purchase if you're buying a studio here a studio there i, I think the nether realm part of this is really enticing i think rocksteady is really enticing even though I love Avalanche, I don't think they're all that enticing. And I don't, you know, there's a couple other studios in here and just, it feels like you're getting some really high end stuff. You're getting some low end stuff. And at the end of the day, this is all contingent on, on whether or not you have access to these IPs. And it just becomes a whole sticky situation of if you have the IPs, you have to use them. But if you use them, you're going to fuck over gamers on other platforms and you're going to kind of water. Well, this is really a personal thing, right? Because I, 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 you're not really watering down your brand by having X, Batman on Xbox, right? If anything, that just makes Xbox stronger. But it is it is just a one. It's just one of those things where it's like I, I, I just personally want to see Xbox make Xbox games rather than buy Batman and make Batman an Xbox thing. I just, I guess that's what, really what it comes down to. That's where I keep butting heads with this with this whole story, but I, I think we need to leave it now because this it's time to get into some news and, and talk about literally anything else. But yeah, I, I, I want to see Microsoft continue to invest and build and buy new studios, but I want to see, you know, as Lethal Migraine says in some other comments, you know, build the Japanese studio, uh, buy that Polish studio, whatever. I, I want to see them go around the world and buy some different studios of varying you know, from varying parts of the world and varying cultures, because I, Xbox des desperately needs some Japanese love for sure. And Xbox desperately needs, I mean, Xbox in general could just, could just really benefit from more diverse types of, of developers and things like that. And, and X, to the extent Xbox has it a lot, when you really think about it, Xbox has a, a kind of unusual number of, of, of UK developers, which is really awesome they actually yeah they have like a staggering number of uk developers compared to like most first parties um but it's really mostly like pretty much everyone in the xbox family is like american canadian or 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 like or like english right i like i don't think they have any like i don't know so it just really be nice if they if they cover some of that eastern ground in particular by by going over to japan setting up a studio there be nice if they did some of that some of that more like uh, Western European developer shit. 
and just kind of try to cover more ground with different parts of the world. And I think that could offer a lot of good shit into the Xbox family as opposed to just buying a bunch more action adventure developers from WB. But I, I digress at this point because I feel like I'm really not adding anything of real thought or, or value to this conversation. That is next week. I'm going to pick. I think I think I need to start can't choosing, you know, picking and choosing what comments to add because an hour of comments at the beginning of the show. <laughs> I, I appreciate those of you who are up for an hour of comments at the beginning, but I think we need to just try to keep the show, you know, short or find a good length for the show and then keep it sweet rather than just uh, making it obs- excessively long. Because um, I don't, there there can be too much of a good thing, and uh, so that. So now we're done with all the comments for the for this week. I appreciate everyone tuning in and listening to lethal migraine and, and Sarugi and me and all of us talking with each other and all the, everyone else. Thank you for your comments, especially if it's your first time. I appreciate you reaching out and being a part of our show here, but now, you know, Oh, of course, don't remember for next week. Don't be shy. Reply as it, as it must be said, but now we will talk about video games and what I've been playing. But before I can tell you what I've been playing, I must tell you what I've been eating. And this week, Oh, I'm so excited to tell you I've had theme park food for the first time in four months. And I couldn't be happier this past week. If you, if you follow news, I know the entire world, it seems has been shitting on the U S state of Florida because we reopened, uh, because, or because Disney reopened their theme parks this week. And it's, it's so funny. Disney sucks. Florida sucks. We're the worst. Ha ha. Florida man jokes. I get it. But Disney actually did a fantastic job opening this past week. I was able to go to an annual pass holder preview of the parks opening up, which basically just means I got to go to the parks the day before they opened officially and go to like a really low attendance park day. And it was amazing because the park was completely deserted. And I have basically we had this, there were very few people in the park and we had the whole place to ourselves and there was no lines or anything for any rides. Disney's doing an awesome job with social distancing and with keeping things very clean and enforcing mask wearing and all that shit. But none of that matters because that's not what this is about. This is about having access to theme park food again. And last week when, when I went to the park, I, um, I had some, I had a Disney cheeseburger. I had a, had some Disney French fries. I had a Disney flatbread. I, I indulged in some Disney theme park food for the first time in, in four months. And I had to fight back the tears. It was just so goddamn beautiful. It was everything I remembered it being. It was everything I love and more. And it was, uh, it's honestly the happiest I've been in a very long time was just, uh, gorging in, in disgusting fast food that was marked up by like, 200% cost, but nonetheless, that's, that's what I've been eating. The theme park food. I, I gotta say, I, as I mentioned, anytime theme park food comes up in this podcast, please do not be frightened by the thought of theme park food. I know, you know, a lot of the regional theme parks throughout, throughout the world, a lot of like your six flags parks, your Cedar fair parks, they have their disgusting, atrocious food that makes the McDonald's value menu look gourmet by comparison. Don't, don't think of, don't think of all theme park food like that because it's just not, you know, and when you go to Disney, you can expect, the finest overpriced fast food you've ever had because it just is and it's delicious and it's special in its own right and I highly encourage you to keep an open mind if you think oh I've never been to Disney World before but I know theme park food is is garbage it's it's not I promise you it's very special stuff and if you'd like to know more you can you can message me directly I'm more than happy to help um, lay out your food journey for you if you're ever planning a trip to the Walt Disney World Resort or or any theme park for that matter. I would be more than happy to to help you plan where and when you should eat and what you should order because theme park food is something that means more to me than any Xbox could ever mean. So uh, I'm just very happy to be back in the parks gorging uh, in the middle of a pandemic. 
But that's what I've been eating. Aside from that, I, I guess I've been playing some video games as well. Halo Combat, uh, Combat Evolved Anniversary Edition. I got back to that a little bit, playing some more of that. I'm at the end of it now. Just kind of doing my annual replay of the Halo games, enjoying that. Fantastic game, classic as always. But I also finally started playing Yakuza Kiwami. So yeah, I played Yakuza 0 a few months ago. That was my my foray into the Yakuza series. Fell in love with it immediately, as as you might know, as I talked about extensively on this podcast, just how much I love that game. And Kiwami is the remake of the first game, which was an old PS2 game. I, I guess they really just use all the same assets and everything for every game, it, it appears, because the world map is the exact same, even though it's supposed to be like 25 years after the first game or after Yakuza 0. All the art assets and, and, and character figures and everything are 100% the same. It just feels like It just feels like a continuation of the last game I played, which is just fine with me because Yakuza 0 was so great and I'm just kind of right back where I was with the last one about seven eight hours into the game having a great time great story again great characters I love the I love the arcadey brawly fun combat of these games with like the serious storytelling that's just super gripping it's just they're just such unique games I I really wish I I learned about these games sooner but at the same time I guess I can't kind of I kind of gave them a shot at the right time anyway because I I'd prefer to play them on Xbox and I'm, I'm really hoping that these Yakuza games being on Game Pass really helps strengthen a relationship between Sega and Xbox and that we start to see more Yakuza games come over to Xbox and more Sega games come over to Xbox. And hopefully this is all part of, you know, Sega or Japanese developers in general just supporting Xbox more. I know it's been just such a hard journey. This is why I really think Microsoft just needs to jump in there and get a Japanese studio um, I know Lethal Migraine was saying the same thing. The Xbox just so desperately needs more Japanese uh, content, and Yakuza is just one of the best examples of the kinds of things I want to see on here. Um, I, I'm not just looking for like Final Fantasy and that kind of garbage because I'm not some kind of pedophile. Um, I'm looking for like actual good games that come from Japan, and Yakuza is really scratching that itch for me, and I'm just super, super excited to play more of it. And then Kiwami 2 comes out in just a few days here, so. I'll jump into that one pretty soon. And then we've got Yakuza Like a Dragon coming to Xbox Series X later this year. So lots and lots of Yakuza. Um, but here's hoping that uh, we, we see more and more Japanese shit start to come to our beloved Xbox platform. And that's what I've been playing. That's everything for the week. We will now jump into our new segment. Remember, the show used to be about Xbox news. So now we will do some of that. All right. Our first story here is in regards to Halo 3. So when Halo 3 first launched back in September 2007, the world became a better place. Neither the most pious or scientifically inclined could quite contextualize it, but regardless of who you are and where you're from, the general consensus from around the globe is that on September 25th, 2007, the planet Earth just became a better place to exist. Job markets grew, romantic relationships blossomed, but most importantly, gamers united. The only setback was that PC nerds of the time were left out in the cold for the first time ever in Halo history. While a personal computer had never been treated as a first-class citizen by Bungie, PC players at the very least eventually got their hands on Halos 1 and 2. However, 3 was different. 3 was special. For 13 years, Halo 3 was left in the hands of the elite few who knew how to give the game the proper respect that it deserved. I'm speaking, of course, about the Xbox gamers. For only they knew how to elegantly net a killionaire while remembering to teabag each and every downed foe like a good sport. Now we live in an era where all platforms are recognized as equal, and as such, it is time that the PC nerds are bestowed the greatest of Bungie's crowning jewel, their magnum opus, if you will, Halo 3. 
As part of the Master Chief Collection on PC, players can now enjoy the halo that brought millions to tears with the introduction of Marty O'Donnell and Michael Salvatore's masterpiece composition, Never Forget. Literally chokes me up just thinking about it right now. May this moment be one to remember and cherish for all time, for both Halo fans and PC weebs alike. So, yeah, this is a really important story here. It's a really just historical moment for the Halo franchise. This past week, or just yesterday on Tuesday, or I guess at the time this show's going up, two days ago on Tuesday, the 14th, Halo 3 came out on PC via the Master Chief Collection, and there's really not too much to get into. This is more of like, a, hey, just by the way, this is out now, but... I felt like I wanted to write a little something to kind of to memorialize this moment and celebrate it because this is just such a big deal. I remember I remember specifically in 2007, people bitching and moaning about how it wasn't on PC and like, oh, well, it'll come to PC in a couple months or a year and it just never came to PC. And it kind of for for a couple of years there, Halo 3 not being on PC was a big argument and it was a big thing that people bitched and moaned about. And I remember that being a thing. But at the same time, I didn't give a shit because I played Xbox 360 and I wasn't a fucking nerd who tried to shit where I sleep, you know, so or shit where I eat because the the PC is not a not a proper place for gaming. So this is just really awesome that for the first time ever, you know, Halo 3 is now available on the PC. It's weird to think that Halo Reach made it to PC before 3 did, but here we are anyway. And it's just awesome to see, you know, all the people when I scroll through Twitter and stuff, just people talking about how great the game looks on PC, uh, FOV sliders and all these things, how they're making the game just look and run and play differently and, and how they're just able to basically achieve the same feeling that Halo 3 had or or how people remember Halo 3 playing now that they have it on PC and they can kind of retool it a little bit and it's just awesome to see people really enjoying this game. The game has had like over 50,000 concurrent players on Steam the other day. Um, throughout the day, it peaked at like over 90,000 concurrent players. So it's got a decent little install base and, and, and player base here. Uh, I'm just really happy to see people celebrating what is undoubtedly one of the top three greatest video games ever made, hands down objective fact. And it's, I don't know, just a great, great day to celebrate, even though I personally won't be playing Halo 3 on PC because... One, my computer can't run it, or one, my computer just simply doesn't like the Master Chief Collection, and two, uh, I'll just play it on my Xbox. But I am very, just want to just put it out, some good vibes, some excitement about Halo 3, and just say to all of you who haven't played it in a long time or who are looking forward to playing it on PC, this is an awesome moment, and I'm I'm happy for you all, I'm happy for all of us as, uh, as Halo fans, so let that be in a in a year full of nothing but shit news day after day let that be a beacon of hope that maybe one day uh, the beauty of halo will unite us all and and and, and make problems go away our, our next story and i guess our our biggest story of the week in terms of just the quantity of news is that uh ubisoft this past week the french publisher ubisoft held their first ubisoft forward digital event that was concocted as a replacement for their traditional e3 media briefing during the roughly 45 minute presentation we got some new looks at some previously announced games that are coming as well as like one big reveal uh and note that this event was intended to be more bite-sized kind of like, you know, a la like Nintendo Direct, uh, and that Ubisoft does plan to hold the second forward event later this year to keep the momentum going in regards to the company's upcoming games lineup. So I thought this was going to be, you know, I, I tuned in on Sunday when this happened. I turned off my Yakuza game. I I tuned into the the Twitch stream, and I was like, I'm ready to see what Ubisoft's doing, expecting like a, a traditional like E3 offering of news. Um, but really what happened was Ubisoft just showed us 
some additional looks at some games we already knew about and release some details about games we already knew about and then formally announce Far Cry 6 after I'd been teased the days leading up to the announcement. So so there was n- like nothing new here. It was just kind of like an update presentation. So a little disappointing in that regard, but at the same time, I guess I don't know what else I was expecting because Ubisoft had all these imminent games that we just hadn't seen yet come out and so i guess they're going to talk about them so that all makes sense but here we go um i'll do this kind of out of order in my own order um but far cry 6 is is the the game they capped off the event with um which is of course undoubtedly the biggest piece of info because it was like the announcement of a new game um so after a couple leaks leading up to this this uh show ubisoft showed an actual reveal trailer for the game shortly after and then they dropped some uh, screenshots and although we didn't see any like formal gameplay you know we got an idea of what it looks like and some tone stuff from the trailer it's it's far cry it's gonna look and play like far cry so that's all you need to know the game features the breaking bad actor giancarlo esposito esposito uh, as the latest villain uh, far cry 6 will release on xbox one and series x on february 18th 2021 so not really too much to get into this the setting is kind of back to like an island setting it looks like it looks kind of like a I, I don't know some some kind of island setting and uh, the Mr. Esposito, who I'm not familiar with as an actor um, because I've never seen Breaking Bad, um, is going to play the new villain. He seems kind of interesting. The The trailer was basically a whole tonal piece, kind of a villain reveal trailer um, with that kid who was like given a grenade. And he was like, hey, I pulled the pin. Don't let it move or it'll blow up. And he's like, come look at these people. Are we going to kill these people? Are we going to help save them? And it it was kind of one of those like typical Far Cry where it's like, here's the new villain. Look how crazy he is. Look how psychotic he is. Look how, you know, mad this man is. Isn't he so compelling as a character? And, you know, that's always been the crux of Far Cry games, or at least since Far Cry 3, right? Is like, look at these amazing villains. That's really what holds the game together from a narrative perspective. But now we're starting to get to the point where I'm just like, oh, all right. It's like, I, I understand that's what Far Cry games do, but like between like Voss and Pagan Min and Joseph Seed and all these villains, I'm like, now it just feels like a little like, oh, yep, there's Far Cry doing the Far Cry thing. And it's very Ubisoft. It's very predictable. It's not as exciting as it once was. But that being said, if I'm trying to take all the jadedness away from it and just judge the tone and the look of the character and kind of that introduction to him, he seems cool. The The world seems cool. We're back to an island-like setting, um, so it looks very Far Cry 3-like. Uh, and then the screenshots we saw looked pretty stunning visually, but then again, Far Cry 5 looked amazing stu- like visually, so I mean... I don't really know how next gen it's going to look, I guess, until I'm playing it. But the game looks good. It looks like more Far Cry. I assume it is literally nothing but more Far Cry. But I will say this. Far Cry 5 disappointed me so much. And I think a lot of people shared this disappointment, what I've learned in recently. And it's that, you know, it did that thing where it was like, all right, so here's the bad guy, Joseph Seed. To get to him, you got to clear out these three areas. There's the area led by this brother, this brother, and his sister. And so, like, you do every single quest, including side quests, in an area to do this mini boss, and then the same thing in this area, and this area, and then it takes you to the end of the game. I really hated that. And I missed how in Far Cry 3 and 4, it was much more, the mission structure was much more linear, where it was like, you do this mission and this mission and this mission, and you can skip the side missions if you don't want to do them. And it was like a linear path to 
the through the main story, which kept the cinematic effect of it and the immersion and the story kind of more consistent. That it kept the pacing going better. But Far Cry Five totally fucking dropped the ball by being like, yeah, you can just kind of do a third of the game at your leisure, and then this third of the game in your own leisure, and you can do it in any order you prefer. And the the story just feels kind of like strung together loose plot ideas rather than like. Uh, a specific narrative that's strung together from one linear mission to the next. And I really hope they rectify that in Far Cry 6 by going back to the more linear mission structure of like, you play this mission, then you unlock this one, then you play this one, and you don't have to play every single side quest like you did in Far Cry 5, because that really fucking sucked in Far Cry 5. I hated that. So I'm hoping they fix that. But other than that, I mean, Far Cry is actually a game I really enjoy quite a bit. I, I love Far Cry 4 is my favorite, but I love 3, I love 4, I love Blood Dragon, I love the DLC for 4. I liked 5 enough. I thought New Dawn, the DLC for 5, was really good until the end, which I, I mentioned at the top of the show. And so, yeah, I'm 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 hopeful that this will be good. I, I don't know. After both 5 and New Dawn, I'm not convinced that they can bring back the magic of 3 and 4, but I really hope I'm wrong. I really hope this is just kind of more a return to form or an evolution that I enjoy better than what they did with 5. But I, I certainly hope it's not, you know, more of what we saw in 5 at the very least. But I'm excited to see a new setting, new villain, new Far Cry game. It's, uh, it's not going to be groundbreaking, but it is comfort food at this point, and I'm sure it will be fun because Far Cry is usually pretty fun. So the next game they showed is, is Assassin's Creed Norway Man, Assassin's Creed Val Valhalla. One of the biggest games during the event was Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which we saw back during Microsoft's May Xbox Series X event. During the show, the game was introduced by none other than the religious Xbox figure, Phil Spencer, who mentioned that the game is being supported via Xbox's smart delivery feature. For the game, they showed a decent length gameplay segment to make up for the fan criticism that the last time the game was shown, no proper gameplay was, was anywhere to be found. The game is set for an Xbox One and Series X release date on November 17th, 2020 and so that will either be one of those games I, i'm again i'm telling you series x comes out in november i don't give a shit what anyone says on any other xbox podcast i don't want to hear about your other boyfriends um i'm telling you xbox series x is coming out in november it's just how these things work now this is either going to be one of those things where series x comes out a few days after assassin's creed so like you'll be able to buy you know this happens a lot with console launches we're like oh i can buy the game for this new console like three days before the console comes out so i assume the, the release date of Assassin's Creed Valhalla is, if not the same day, it's within days of the launch of the Xbox Series X. I'm telling you. I, I'm telling you the Xbox Series X is going to release sometime within the window of, like, November 14th to November 24th. Something like that. I don't even know what days of the week those are. I don't even know if that's, like, maybe that's, like, a Thursday and a Tuesday. Who fucking knows? I'm telling you, it's, like, somewhere in that window is when we get the Series X. So... You can expect that to be pretty much a launch game, um, at the very least, of course, a launch era game. Um, but yeah, so they showed Assassin's Creed Valhalla, and I'm just I'm just gonna be super honest with you guys. This isn't me doing my journalistic duty as an Xbox podcaster. I couldn't give a shit any less about this game. I just don't care. I've never cared about Assassin's Creed. I've gone through phases where I've tried to like be like, oh, well, maybe I can give this one a try. I want to see what the series is all about. Assassin's Creed Valhalla does nothing for me. I'm so uninterested by it. The graphics look incredible. The art style looks incredible. It looks like more Assassin's Creed. It's super off-putting to me because it looks like a game that's going to take like 50, 70 hours of your life and it's going to be open world and I just don't give a shit about any of that. So... If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, if you're looking forward to Valhalla, I hope you found the gameplay very enticing. Uh, but to me, this is, it's exactly like Far Cry. I'm like, this is just 
more Assassin's Creed the way Far Cry 6 is just more uh, Far Cry. So, I, again, I hope you're looking forward to that, but I just I can't speak to this other than to say... Here we are, we're getting another Assassin's Creed. I'm sure it's in the vein of like Origins and Odyssey, those newer Assassin's Creed games that are a little more open world, a little more RPG-like than previous Assassin's Creed games. And I'm sure people will like it very well. I'm sure it will get favorable reviews critically and it will sell very well commercially. And then they will make another Assassin's Creed in three years because that's how these things work. But I'm not trying to be down on it. I just simply don't give a fuck about Assassin's Creed. That being said, I did think it was interesting that they had Phil Spencer kind of be the guy to to present this one because I was like, that is so obviously their way of saying like, hey guys, it's me again. Remember the association of, of Xbox and Assassin's Creed? Well, guess what? Sorry, we didn't show any gameplay last time. Here's some gameplay. Please don't forget about Xbox. And, and the other interesting thing about this is obviously there's, you know, there are marketing deals we, we see this all the time, Destiny with PlayStation, Call of Duty with Xbox in the 360 days, and then with PlayStation in the modern era. Um, Assassin's Creed is definitely definitely has a little bit of a in-bed kind of deal with, with uh, Microsoft and with Xbox. And I feel like we've seen this kind of flip back and forth where I remember, what was the Assassin's Creed game, the first one that came out on Xbox One? It was the one that took place in France. The one that had like one bug on the PC one time and then someone took a screenshot of it and lied to the internet and then everyone thought the game was broken for the rest of forever. It was uh, Assassin's Creed. Uh, I'm going to remember the second I stop recording. But anyway, it was that Assassin's Creed game, the one that took place in France. And that one was like super heavily marketed as like an Xbox One game. And then the next one that came out, which was Syndicate, the one that takes place in, I believe, England... I feel like that one kind of was like they flipped the script and they're like, oh, this one's like a PlayStation marketed game. And then after that one, they went back to being like, nah, Assassin's Creed's an Xbox thing. It's just, it's weird. I don't know why they did that. But yeah, Assassin's Creed is definitely one of those things that gets marketed and associated as an Xbox branded game, um, which I guess kind of makes sense. I feel like the first Assassin's Creed was pretty notable and well associated with Xbox 360. But yeah, I mean, Ubisoft kind of shares the love in that regard because I think Far Cry usually gets marketed more as a PlayStation game anyway. So not much more to say with that. Expect uh, Assassin's Creed to come out in November and be like every other Assassin's Creed game ever. And then next they showed they, they showed an extensive look at Fortnite. Fortnite is the new Battle Royale game from Ubisoft um, uh, Hyperspace. So they, they announced Hyperspace last week for some reason before this event. I guess maybe there were some leaks going around or they wanted to get ahead of some leaks or something. I don't really know. I guess they wanted to kind of get some hype drum up, drummed up around the game so that when they talked about it at their event, they could be like, by the way, there's a beta going on right now. People are already playing it. People already like it. Jump into it. You know, maybe they're just trying to kind of get tests in the water so they can really capitalize on the initial fan feedback of the game. But yeah, they showed Hyperspace, their new Battle Royale game. They did a whole character tra trailer. It looks like a perfect blend of Overwatch and Fortnite and Apex Legends all rolled into one. And we got a look at some of the lore, some of the characters, some gameplay footage. This lady in France talked about for a very long time about how, or I think she was from Canada, um, but she talked about how uh, she works very hard to design costumes for the characters in the game. And then Ubisoft confirmed that there will be a 30-tier battle pass that has been added to the game by default. Presumably, future battle passes will be available for purchase like every other Battle Royale game. So, sorry to be so so down and, and dire and just apathetic about this event, but... Again, it's just it was a lot of looks at games we already knew about games I, I that just aren't my cup of tea. Uh, my these aren't these aren't my my cup of alley. These aren't up my tea. So 
hyperspace. People seem to really like it. If you're a Battle Royale fan, you might want to give it a try. Right now they're doing a PC beta, and I think it comes out on Xbox later on this summer, and then it'll be cross-platform all, all, all around. So I'll probably get dragged into playing it at some point with my nephew. Um, so that's Fortnite or hyperspace. And then they opened the show. Kind of their first big thing they showed was uh, UK Dogs, also known as Watch Dogs Legion. It was the big thing they opened with. It was their, you know, the game obviously famously pushed back uh, from its fall 2019 release. And the game is now set for an Xbox One and Series X launch on October 29th, 2020. So we saw a bunch of really lit gameplay of millennials playing with drones in a Ubisoft-looking setting. The game features all the staples that we've come to expect from AAA games in 2020. It is bright. It has a colorful cast of characters that are visually striking and way more diverse than than any given group of people um, are in real life. And it's open world, and there's a lot of things you can discover and quote-unquote hack. And so it looks like more watchdogs. I understand the big, like, catch of this game is that you can, like, hack other people and, like, play as people and kind of take them over and, and use them as, like basically like just zombies to do <laughs> to do your bidding and so I, I get that that's a cool concept I, i'm not going to try to discredit that i think that that is a fun twist it, it does make the game stand out and look interesting um but again watchdogs is it's right up there with assassin's creed it's just like man i thought about trying this game before uh, and, and i just don't give a shit and i just will never play it and it's just not my thing you know i only my theory about Ubisoft is because their games are so samey where it's like open world, unlock the map, do whatever, you know, kind of like the joke that Sarugi was making in his comment earlier. It's like everyone's capacity for Ubisoft is like, I have room in my heart for one Ubisoft game, right? Because they're all the same. So it's like, which flavor of Ubisoft do you want to play? Are you a Watch Dogs fan? Are you an Assassin's Creed fan? Are you a Far Cry fan? I, I'm personally a Far Cry guy, so I, I like Far Cry just fine. The first time I played Far Cry, it blew me away, and then I quickly realized every Far Cry is just Far Cry again with a different skin on it, and that's not a bad thing at all. I like the characters, I like the villains, I like the stories of those games. I think they're super fun. It's Far Cry is like my favorite game to just like dick around in and listen to a podcast while I play, and then you know pause pause the podcast during a cutscene and then go back into the game. It's like one of my favorite like zone out kind of games for that and i always enjoy just blasting through the campaign and move you know playing the next one when it comes out but i just don't have it in me for like multiple ubisoft games and so if i seem very down that's that's kind of where i'm coming from is like we already got far cry that's my ubisoft game i don't i'm not going to go play far cry in the form of watchdogs or far cry in the form of assassin's creed it's just not my thing so watchdogs legion I'm, it seems like people are actually pretty optimistic about this game i remember keep in mind when watchdogs the original was announced the one where you play is that uh, trench coat man in Chicago people were like super stoked about that game I even was pretty interested in it and everyone thought it was gonna be like this GTA killer it was like announced at the end of the 360 era came out as a Xbox 360 or Xbox one launch game and or launch ish era game kind of around the early part of the generation and people like were pretty disappointed by it. The consensus was like, "This is fine." It got that Ubisoft feedback, you know, the the same feedback every Ubisoft game gets because every Ubisoft game is the is the same thing, where it was like, "Oh, great first attempt. I can't wait to see how they flesh it out in the sequel." And then Watch Dogs Two came out, and I felt like literally no one gave a shit. 
it wasn't like Watch Dogs 1 that lit the world on fire. People were just like, yeah, I don't care. Now you play as the guy in San Francisco instead of Chicago. And then when Watch Dogs 2 came out, people were like, actually, hang on a second. Watch Dogs 2 is actually really good. And, and it seems like critically and to the people who actually did play it, like Watch Dogs 2 is a pretty damn good game. Like it was a much better second effort uh, compared to the first one. And then yeah, it just kind of fell off. If anything, it felt like the game underperformed. But now we're coming back with Watch Dogs Legion, and I feel like we got the perfect balance where, like, now it seems like people are actually kind of pretty excited about Watch Dogs Legion, and we know that the series has proven itself because the sequel was pretty good. So if you're a Watch Dogs fan, I got to assume Watch Dogs Legion is probably going to be, you know, it's going to be the Assassin's Creed 2 or the Far Cry 3 where it's like, mm, they finally they finally hit it. They, they figured out how to balance everything just so. Now everyone loves it. The game's super good. It sells well. It gets great reviews. It's the whole whole nine yards. So hopefully this is the, the Watch Dogs entry that really does it for the franchise. I'm actually kind of surprised it's gone on for three entries, but happy for the developers that they still have a job, I guess. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, that's Watch Dogs. It's coming out later this year in October and you can play it if you're, if you are of the Watch Dogs variety rather than the Far Cry or Assassin's Creed variety. Um, and then other than that, they did a couple of like updates and tidbits and things like that, little announcements. Brawlhalla is getting an iOS and Android version on August 6th. Just Dance 2020 is getting a big update with a bunch of new songs on July 23rd. The Crew 2 is getting a 1980s themed update that comes out sometime in August. Ghost Recon Breakpoint is finally getting its um, its free update on July 15th that adds AI teammates to the game so that people can play it single player and actually play the game rather than needing a squad and needing friends. Um, so that's a, that was probably the biggest small announcement they had. And then they showed some Sam Fisher mobile game that pissed people off that they showed last year because people keep asking for a new Splinter Cell and they just keep showing iPhone games instead. Um, so whatever that iPhone thing is from last year, they show that again, to, just to, just to really rub it in people's face, I guess. Um, so yeah, that was, that was pretty much the, what all happened. That was pretty much the list of the announcements, but you know, of course there was a whole lot of like, Hey, aren't there some things missing, you know? So that was the big criticism of the show. It's like, okay, well you show us a lot of games. We've already seen a bunch and that we knew were coming. There were no real like big announcements or anything to really get excited about. So Despite all that, you know, after the event, um, Ubisoft did mention, of course, there will be another Ubisoft Forward event happening later this year, as I said. So perhaps, you know, a lot of the games that we didn't see will be shown at that event, hopefully in the next like three months or so. List of, you know, examples of games we haven't, we didn't see at the event that people are like, where the fuck is this game? Uh, includes Beyond Good and Evil 2, Skull and Bones, God and Monsters, Rainbow Six Quarantine, and a couple others. So, Pretty good list of games that's just like, well, you've announced this game, where is it? But speaking of Skull and Bones, so shortly after this 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 event, there was like a report that went out from VGC, Video Game Chronicle, that suggested that uh, Ubisoft's long-showed and still-not-out pirate game, Skull and Bones, is reportedly getting a reboot to become a live games-as-a-service type a la Fortnite. Sources told VGC... in. Uh, that the game has, quote, been struggling to carve itself a unique position among Ubisoft's existing portfolio of open-world games, uh, leading teams to apparently reboot, leading the team to apparently reboot Skull and Bones last year, shifting away from the, quote, premium box model used by most of Ubisoft's games, like Assassin's Creed or The Division. 
According to the report, the uh, rebooted Skull and Bones will feature a, quote, persistent game world with quests, characters, storylines uh, with drastically evolved that will drastically evolve and change over time based on the collective actions of the community. And, quote, the team behind Skull and Bones, which is, of course, now being which is also now reportedly being led by by writer slash director uh, Elizabeth Palin, uh, Pellin, that, that she has been heavily inspired by Fortnite's success with the live storytelling model. So that's where they're going with that. Skull and Bones was first showed at E3 2017 and has since been shown in some capacity every year since until this week's Ubisoft Forward event where the game was just conspicuously absent. Um, so... That was an interesting one where it's just like everyone's immediately like, hey, where's Skull and Bones? Why why won't you just release that game yet? And then pretty soon afterwards, it's like, hey, report. Skull and Bones got rebooted and it's turning into a games as a service free to play thing. So that doesn't surprise me at all. I was actually, you know, before before the story broke a few days after this event, I was actually getting ready to talk about on this podcast how I very much think Skull and Bones has been canceled, just quietly killed off. Um, but now we know it hasn't been canceled. We're just going to get it in the form of some free-to-play rebooted thing. So I think this is actually all for the better because I don't know if you remember, but personally, when I saw the trailers and demos for Skull and Bones, I thought that game looked super boring as hell. So to me, this is no loss, But and I, I was just never going to play this game anyway. Uh, so if you were looking forward to the Skull and Bones that we originally saw in 2017, 2018, and so on, I'm sorry to say that we're getting a different kind of skull and bones, but I'll be interested to see how this turns out. I think based on what we saw, the game looked like it was a little, pardon the pun, bare bones in terms of like gameplay and game variety and things you could do. So maybe a free-to-play live service model maybe makes more sense for this kind of game anyway. Um, so we'll just have to wait and see, but I'm I'm not entirely surprised by this. And I don't think this is, you know, despite my usual disgust with free-to-play games, I don't think this is necessarily a bad direction for this game to be heading in. So yeah, I'm not, I, I just, not much to say to that. I just, I'm not upset about this or turned off by it. Like normally I would be from an announcement like this. So if you hate Ubisoft, if you're done with all this shit, that is the, that's the end of our Ubisoft bullshit. There was some, some people who resigned from Ubisoft this week due to those, uh, sexual misconduct allegations, but I really want to stop talking about real world political bullshit and, uh, and all that me too stuff because, it makes me sad, and this podcast is, is supposed to be a safe haven where we can talk about Halo and theme park food and burritos versus tacos and, and Mountain Dew, and I just don't want to make it about um, that other stuff, especially when it's just, I don't know, it's like we're not we're not learning new information from that stuff. We're just getting progressively more sad and, and losing more faith in, in, in humanity every time those stories break, so just, just know some bad boys are leaving the company and and that's that our next story that's actually related to video games and not sexual misconduct is that well as pulled from the ign article xbox series x's velocity architecture design should make for smaller game downloads fewer loader fewer loading bottlenecks and theoretically allows for the console to achieve performance beyond what's expected of its raw hardware in a post on Xbox Newswire, Xbox Series X Director of Program Management Jason Ronald explained how the Velocity Architecture solutions work alongside the console's processor uh, to offer huge improvements over current current gener- sorry over current generation technology and even over what could originally have been expected on the base Series X components. As Ronald puts it, quote. If our custom design processor is at the heart of the Xbox Series X, the Velocity architecture is at its soul. 
Ronald points out four hardware and software innovations that make up the Velocity architecture as a whole. So he breaks them down into the four segments, and we'll start with the uh, custom NVMe SSD. So the Series X SSD allows for up to 40 times the I.O. throughput, essentially the amount of data transfer between the console uh, allowed every second uh, of Xbox One, but also has been designed not to drop in performance below a certain level. Essentially, developers can design their games without having to work around the data transfer constraints by, for instance, introducing the loading tunnels we've seen in open world games uh, this generation. Basically saying that, oh, we'll break these down point by point, and, and we've seen this one addressed before, basically saying that, you know, with the SSD this fast, we'll be able to load data and transfer data so quickly that we won't have to play games where they do the thing like, oh, we got to get to the other side of this wall. So let's just do the thing where you go up to the wall, there's a crack in it, you press A, and then it does like an animation of the character like sliding in between the crack and going to the other side of the wall, and then it loads in the new area during that little animation or like where a character like has to go through a winding hallway to kind of get from one area of the map to the next to kind of like forget all the old assets of that area you came from and to load in all the assets of the area you're entering. You know, all these little tricks to help kind of load in big worlds. It's saying that it can just basically avoid that shit altogether by being like, well, these these transfer speeds are so fast and these data reading speeds are so fast that basically all that shit's just there all the time and you can basically just make the game even more open and even more endless feeling and looking without having to come up with little unique tricks to make the world load in and everything like that because the SSD will just be uh, that fast and offer uh, those transfer speeds that are just super impressive. So that's number one. We've kind of already seen that, but uh, we'll just keep going on. Our next one is that the hardware accelerated decompression. Series X uses both an industry standard LZ decompressor and a proprietary algorithm designed specifically for decompressing game texture data. Typically the larger portions are uh, of overall the game size. Typically the largest portion of an overall game size. The result should be that storage sizes and download times per game are reduced. So this is like a, a massive double whammy one that's super exciting to me. Which is basically just, you know, without all the nerd talk, basically just a way to make game files smaller and game download times faster. Meaning that, basically just meaning that, like, I don't know, games that were originally at one point super fucking, like, 80, 90 gigabytes to download, maybe can be compressed down to, like, 55, 60 gigs, I don't know, just a little bit smaller. So instead of, like, downloading a game for, like, I don't know, anywhere from, like, two to five hours, depending on your internet speeds now being able to download them just a little bit faster because file sizes are smaller. So this is a really important thing. I, I And I, I almost don't want to be impressed by this because I feel like Nintendo has been... Nintendo have been the champs of, like, file compression for so long. And I don't know if it's fair to compare because I know Nintendo games are, like, vastly inferior in terms of, like, in terms of, like, technical fidelity. But, like, Nintendo games have just been the king. Nintendo has just been the kings of, of of file compression for so long that it's almost just like, oh, well, good for Microsoft. They're catching up in that regard. But then again, it's not like the PlayStation's been any better. It's always been that story where it's just like, why are these game files just so massive? <clears throat> and of course, I understand, as always, it's one of those things I don't personally understand. I you know I don't know how hard it is to do that, but... This is a, just another like one of those things where it's like it makes an issue that's an issue for everyone, the consumer and the creator, less of an issue for the consumer. And it's not one of those things you have to think too hard about. It just makes things smaller files, easier to download, faster to get into the action, faster to get to the game. So really awesome little spec there. And then we have our direct storage API. Uh, this is a new addition to DirectX family of APIs, giving developers control over how they want to assign and prioritize IO tasks in their game. According to Ronald, they should virtually eliminate loading times and make 
fast travel systems actually fast. So what makes this really interesting, and I'm not going to pretend that I really understand all, all this information, is just how it's basically it's basically the system's way of saying like, hey, we're going to give you the, the we're going to give the system the access to say, here's all the power and all of all the assets of the hardware that are available right now. Here's the task that's trying to be run. How do you want to use these these components to complete this task? Like is there a way that this thing that isn't being used can help load in this thing and can help render this thing so that we can get into the action faster, so we can make the load times faster, so we can make fast travel faster and things like that? And it just makes it to where you can basically just open up your map and be like, boom, I want to go here, boom, you just tra- teleport. And you don't have to load or your loading is greatly reduced. And we saw demos of this with that um, with that State of Decay 2 demo where it just loaded stupid fast on the Series X compared to the Xbox One X. So... Again, we've, we've seen these things before, but this is just kind of like a little refresher and breakdown of everything. And then our last one here is the sampler feedback streaming. Games regularly use different qualities of texture depending on how far you are from them. Uh, you often notice that in open world games, trees are lower quality from a distance and high up quality from close, sorry, and high quality up uh, close, for instance. I believe they call this checkerboarding, if I'm not mistaken. I learned that at one point in history. No matter how much uh, of those textures are shown, current gen games will need to load in entire textures in from the background. SFS, or sample feedback streaming, allows textures to be loaded in portions, meaning that IO load is reduced and can be used elsewhere to create more details packed in the world. So I don't quite understand exactly how this works, but I what I do understand about it is that the exciting aspect of this is that that makes it basically means like I think the perfect example of this is like Gears of War because the early Gears of War games in particular were extremely guilty of this where like a level would load in and then you just like see all these textures just kind of like plain and gross and then the textures would load in and pop in here and there and those games were like super you know guilty of texture pop in and I feel like this is saying that basically not only will it help eliminate, you know, ever running into texture popping, but also when you see objects, you'll just be able to see the great detail even from a farther distance rather than having it be kind of a an eye trick of like, oh, far away, less detail, get closer to the thing, more detail. Um, so that's, you know, rather than having to play tricks to get the hardware to make things look prettier, it will just have the textures there faster, sooner, and more present so that it just looks good all the time. And it's just one of those things where like when all the little tiny things are just loaded in faster and they're faster, it just makes the overall picture on a subconscious level look prettier and look more alluring. And, and that's kind of the benefit to that. So again, these are kind of all things for the most part we knew about, um, but just kind of a, a, a little broken up point-by-point reminder of it and kind of explanation of it all. Uh, But these four elements, as the article continues, uh, should, according to Ronald, allow the Series X to go beyond what's expected of its own hardware components, even enabling, quote, entirely new scenarios never before considered uh, possible in gaming. Quote, the Xbox Velocity architecture fundamentally rethinks how developers uh, can take advantage of the hardware provided on the Series X. From the entirely new rendering techniques to new virtually eliminating loading times, uh, to larger, more dynamic living worlds, where as a gamer you can choose how you want to explore, we can't be more. We couldn't be more excited by the early results we are already seeing. So that's the that's the gist of the story. And as he kind of nicely puts, Mr. Ronald puts at the end there, is basically yeah, just that. It's like it's that yeah. The the specs of the console suggest that the box should be able to do this, this, and this. But when you have these fancy algorithms and these little hardware tricks and techniques and quirks that you can work into the system. You can basically find ways to tell the hardware, like, yeah, not only is this hardware really boundary pushing and advanced and technical, but now it's also being smartly 
taught how to work in ways that may that mean like things that normally only work when they need to work can now find ways to help out other components it's about getting all the components of your of your box of your console to operate less as like individual components and more as like a cohesive like family of components so like think of your xbox as like a body think of your computer as a body rather than having the heart operate and just do heart stuff and, and the arm just move and do arm stuff and the leg just I don't know, whatever the legs do and all that shit and in your brain just process thoughts and think and do shit like brains do. You're able to say like, oh, okay, well right now I'm doing this thing that, that really doesn't require too much demand from this other thing. So what if I had that thing that's not doing anything provide power to help that other thing really excel? It's like, imagine if I, I, I'm really intrigued by this because I wrote a paper on something like this once about like, about like, uh, uh, I, I wrote a paper once about, <laughs> about like, about like family units acting kind of as like a, a body when something breaks, like other parts support that that missing part or that that thing that's completely on its own or independent of the other things. And that's kind of what this is an example of, which is like like imagine you know they say like if you go blind, your sense of hearing is usually heightened because those neural links in your brain don't just disappear; they just rechannel to different senses to help heighten them. So that's kind of what this is like, where it's like. It's not talking about if something breaks, something else does its job, but it's saying, you know, if something is doing all this work, but something else has the capacity to help aid in that task or that process, now that thing will help it and the job will get done twice as fast. So imagine if humans were as smart as computers and like you could you could close your eyes and then your body would I mean, maybe this is a thing that happens. I don't know enough about the human body to know if this is true or not. But maybe it's like if you close your eyes, your body's like, oh well, y- your brain thinks, oh well, now that we're not using vision right now, we can use those neural links in our brain to help heighten our sense of smell and our sense of our sense of feel, touch, and, and taste, and things like that, and and heighten those senses. And and maybe maybe that is a thing human bodies do or whatever, but that's kind of what the example is here is that that's what your console is saying. It's like, Oh, well right now this component isn't really working hard to load this texture, but it had, it provides power. So it gives power to this thing, which allows that thing to make this thing load faster. And I'm saying thing a lot because I don't know enough about these components to really speak on any authority and use specific part names, but it's a really cool concept to think that like not only is the Xbox series X a powerful console because these components on their own are super powerful and impressive and industry leading, but also because of these algorithms and the way these parts are designed to work in tandem with one another, they make the parts, they make the individual parts even more impressive and powerful and useful um, because they can work in tandem with one another, with one another. So I mean, at the end of the day, this isn't going to be a thing that, like, we all notice when we're playing our Xbox Series X. It's probably going to be, you know, the little things that add up and make the overall experience feel more next generation. But it is exciting stuff nonetheless, just from a tech perspective to think, like, it's fucking crazy where we've gotten to with technology and with computers that we can make these kinds of things a reality. And I think these are the thing, these these are the kind of little things that maybe aren't going to blow us away, you know, in 2020 and 2021 when we first start playing these games. But I recently, uh, I don't remember what the example was, but I recently was like looking at a game from like early Xbox One or late 360 generation, and I was, I was just, I was just re- remembering how I remember when I, when I first got my Xbox One and I was playing like Titanfall One on it, I would be like, I remember thinking like this game looks really, really good, 
and I'm, I'm I'm enjoying this game. I'm enjoying this console, but like this game doesn't look ground. Like this game doesn't look like wow. I never saw anything like this ever before. You know, it just feels like games kind of look like the prettiest Xbox 360 games I've ever played. And I remember thinking that with Titanfall, and then for a while I felt that way, where I was like, you know, the Xbox One's a great console, but games don't look like night and day better than they did on the 360. But now that we're removed from the 360 long enough, and there there have been enough years of Xbox One, I'm so used to like what games look like and run at on Xbox One. When I go back to like a 360 game now in 2020, and I, and I play something from like 2009, I'm like. Holy shit, Xbox 360 games looked like ass. And it's just such a funny, random thing to notice. It's And I think the reason why I bring this up is because I'm a very, I'm a very like not tech savvy gamer. I'm a very like, I just play games that I think are fun and interesting. I don't necessarily understand all the technology behind them. And that's obviously how most gamers are. So I think a lot of people will be able to understand and relate to this kind of experience I'm, 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 I'm sharing with you, which is just like, it's so funny how like in 2013 and 2014, I was like, wow, the Xbox one, you know, games look really good on it, but it doesn't look like a massive jump the way like PS2 to ps3 was or you know xbox og to xbox 360 was um so but then you know you get far enough in the generation and then you look back and then you see it all of a sudden it's just one of those things where like subconsciously your brain notices the differences and only with time and with more sophisticated understanding of what you're taking in can you really see the difference because now i look back and i see a 360 game i'm like yeah that looks old but you know, at the beginning of it, I was like, yeah, this, more or less all this shit looks the same to me. So I assume we're going to get there with the, th- with the series X at some point where, you know, in 2024, we'll be playing our Xbox series X's. And then we'll look back on like quantum break on the Xbox one and be like, wow, Xbox one games looked like shit compared to series X, even though I'm confident that when we first start playing Xbox series X later this year, we're going to be like, oh yeah, the games look better than the Xbox one, but you know, not like, NES to like fucking N64 good, you know, it's like, so I, I just think that's an interesting thing. And, and these are the kinds of little tidbits of information, the little nerdy quirks and, and things to, to take in, to keep in mind when, when you have these realizations to be like, well, well, yeah, I mean, t- to the untrained eye, to the, to the ignorant, you know, mind like myself, who doesn't really understand all the technical aspects. It just seems like, you know, oh, well, the games just look pretty over time. I don't know how to explain it. But then you think about, all these, all these, in, these brilliant, ingenious ideas in, in algorithms and components and things that go into making these consoles, and you're like, well, of course they look better because look at, look at all this, all this hard work that goes into making sure there are differences and that these things do matter and that they make a difference. And just because you can't, you know, tell from first sight doesn't mean it's not there. And uh, it's just, just an interesting thought. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, so that's Microsoft talking about the velocity architecture kind of a little bit of some um, some kind of like marketing PR jargon to kind of help push the this notion of like the most powerful console I've ever made but you know that's that's kind of how Microsoft markets their consoles anyway so it's, it's fun it's it's a fun way to find ways to get excited over things that are otherwise pretty nerdy no one gives a shit about kind of stuff so I actually like that Microsoft does that they find ways to make the nerdy who gives a crap parts of tech fun and exciting for the fans and I think that's a good example of that 
Um, and then our final two stories, we'll get jump into our final two stories. Um, this is a, another fun one from IGN. Uh, various Xbox Game Studios leaders like Tim Schafer and Brian Fargo have revealed more about what it means to join up and become Xbox first party studios. In the case of Double Fine, uh, joining the Xbox stable uh, meant being able to put boss fights back into Psychonauts 2, which were previous cut due to budget shortages uh of course tim schaefer is the head of double fine the guys that make psychonauts and currently making psychonauts 2 brian fargo is the head of in exile so um who are currently working on wastelands 3 so in an interview with GamesIndustry.biz, several studio heads now working under the Xbox Game Studios umbrella shared the experiences of being acquired by Xbox. Xbox Game Studios boss Matt Booty uh, prefers a method of acquisition called limited integration or unplugged studios, where developers can remain as they are uh, while Xbox provides, quote, financial firepower in support of the larger business, end quote. Double Fine boss Tim Schaefer shared uh, what it meant for Psychonauts 2 and how with Psychonauts 2, we could see the end of our budget coming up, and so we had to cut a lot of stuff. We had to cut out the boss fights, unquote. After the acquisition, Schaefer says that the studio was able to put the boss fights back in. Quote, I'm looking forward to doing the things that I'm looking forward to doing things for the right reasons. When you only have a certain amount of time and money, you might just jump into it any part of the game that you're not really ready to jump into. Or start working on art before you're ready to, with a design. But now I but now I look forward to this era where we are doing everything uh, for what is right for the game, end quote. Xbox's approach differs for each studio. In Exile, boss Brian Fargo, for example, shared a story about pitching the studio's next game to, to Booty and how, despite it being a new idea, it was relatively a simple process. He says, quote, I prepared a whole presentation. I sat down with Matt and uh, said, here's what we would like to do. And if And he said, if that's what you want to do, then great. It was over in like 60 seconds, end quote. Booty and Xbox uh, head Phil Spencer uh, have attributed the acquisition philosophy uh, to the lesson Microsoft learned from uh, acquiring Minecraft developer Mojang. Quote, first party was making sure the first party was making sure that studios had the things that they needed to build the best versions of the games, says Spencer. That means extending some of the timelines and giving more budgets. We have really strong support from uh, Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, and Amy Hood, the CFO of Microsoft. And there's really been no signal at all that we should stop. We should start slowing down. End quote. So the, I think the most interesting point about this, rather than like Tim Schafer talking about like how they were able to fully fund Psychonauts 2 and help flush it out to be more of like a full packaged you know, game rather than like a kind of budget small indie game. I think the bigger takeaway here is kind of juxtaposing this story with the story last week from Marty O'Donnell, formerly of Bungie, talking about, you know, their experience with Activision and back when they were Microsoft affiliated and everything back in the Halo days. Because that again, last week I kind of ranted about how, oh, you know, the old Don Matrix days of, of kind of being like, oh, we own you, the, the Steve Ballmer Microsoft days of like, we own you, you're ours, you make these games, we control you. You know, they Microsoft was operating in a very Sony-like way back then. And I don't mean that as an insult to Sony, but they were operating kind of that traditional mindset of where like, hey, we own you, you got to make the games we need you to make. We got to have a close eye on you. We got to tell you what you can and can't make. We got to, you know, we're putting out money here. We're investing. We need, we need to make sure that you're making something that's marketable that will sell well, all this shit. And, and again, this is just another example of how the Phil Spencer, Sachin Adela, Matt Booty era of like Xbox leadership and Microsoft leadership is just night and day a totally different thing. And this is what makes, in my opinion, being an Xbox fan right now, the most exciting time to ever be an Xbox fan is because 
Xbox, aside from it just being an awesome brand that I've always loved and that if you listen to this podcast, you've probably always loved, it's it's now not only just a really favorable brand that represents great games and great gaming memories for a brand you love, it is now also like undoubtedly the most consumer-friendly platform in the world. And we talk about that all the time with things like Game Pass. But I think this is such an interesting example of, of being consumer-friendly in a more indirect way. And what I mean by that is... By being super friendly and and willing to work with and accommodating to your game developers as as the owner and the head of these studios, you are indirectly being extremely friendly and open to your consumers because, and here's what I mean by that. It's like things are marketed, you know, games are focus tested and marketed and designed with all this bullshit in mind. Like, oh, well, this demographic enjoys this. So that's why we should do this art style. Like they talk about, they talk about how, like, Gearbox Entertainment talks about how they almost didn't do the cartoony style for Borderlands because they were told by 2K, like, hey, that actually doesn't do well. We we need to do the more gritty art style because that's what does well, you know, back in this time period, Gears War and things like that. And they were like, hey, we really feel strongly that we need to do this. And they took the risk and it, and it paid off. And we talked about last week how, like, how um, how Marcus Leto, formerly of Bungie, talked about how like they really wanted to call Halo Reach just Reach, and they thought it would be like a more powerful name for the game. They thought it was really fitting. And then you know the Xbox execs at the time were like, "Hey, this is we need to sell this game. We need to make money off of it. It's a Halo game. We need to be able to put a Halo for SEO purposes to make it you know to make the box stand out to moms at the store buying kids Christmas gifts and shit like that, so they can go, oh, it's Halo. Kids love Halo. Halo's a big thing. It's a known quantity. Let me buy that thing." And this is a perfect example of like just the opposite. This is this is the polar opposite where the modern day Xbox, you know, management team, the, the modern day execs and everything at Microsoft are saying, listen, you guys are the ones with the creative ideas. You know what the people want to play. You know, we all know that, you know, a game is going to be at its best when when creators have the creative freedom, the time and the money to build what what that magic special special thing is in their head rather than being told this is the time you have this is the money you have this is what we need you to make you have to work within these parameters that idea is not going to work it's a little too out there i don't know that audiences would buy this and you know maybe sometimes the ha- the 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 answer is always in like you know the happy, happy middle where it's like sometimes creators can be a little too unhinged and get a little too far out there but for the most part i think you really got to trust your developers trust your talent trust your creatives and this is an example of you know maybe maybe Microsoft loves this story coming out because it's a little too much of like a pat on the back and good PR for them. But it's it's really important to note because this is exactly what makes Xbox such a loving and compelling brand nowadays is is this is that, you know, in exile and in exile and double fine come into the Xbox fold and, you know, you think, OK, well, what does that mean now? What What is Xbox going to force these guys to do and make? And and now they own all the IP and they're going to control everything. It's like, no, well, basically what happens is Microsoft gets to say, hey, double fine, that's our guys. You know, when you see the double fine name, think Xbox because that's our stuff. And these guys get to just basically keep doing what they're doing. But now they have more creative freedom to do whatever because they have more time, and more money. And it's just it's just a win win for everyone, basically. And it, of course, it's just that that simple logic of, you know, if the developers are happy and being taken care of and accommodated, they'll make great stuff that in turn in turn is great for the consumer. It's just like, you know, if you if you let a cow wander around the farm and feed it right and treat it right, 
the steak's going to taste that much better than if you put it in a fucking cage and, and, and give it cow feed its whole life, you know? It's just a very simple philosophy, and it seems like that's kind of the philosophy that the Xbox leadership has adopted, and I think this is nothing but a good thing for consumers, and of course for developers as well, and that's what that's what really stands out to me with this story, but uh, just a, another little PR hype train thing to throw in there. If you uh, if you're of the mindset that like all oh, that Xbox first party is gonna give it to you come July 23rd, so there's that. And then a wrap up story, a little quick one here is during a Q and A session at an annual shareholders meeting this past week, Japanese developer Capcom revealed that its current digital download sales uh, make up roughly about 80 percent of their games sold. Quote, while it is ultimately dependent on how our customers behave going forward, for the time being, we are promoting our digital strategy with an objective of 90% since there are some customers who prefer to own discs, quote, Capcom noted. As reported by Games GamesIndustry.biz, Capcom's uh, digital sales have exploded, growing from 53.3% last year to 80% this year. Even Capcom predicted the growth uh, would only reach 75.4% this year, but it appears to have shift, the shift to digital is happening even faster than anticipated. So the thing I thought was really uh, interesting about this story is that, you know, we talk, we, we talk about how, like, I think Sony's been pretty open about it, how they're, they're like, yeah, we're now selling about 50% digital these days, or, or like now it's like 60%, and they talk about how they're starting to tip a little bit in that scale, and then we see Nintendo who talks about how it's like 50%, maybe a little less, and then you see Capcom, and they're talking about like 80-90%. I thought this was so interesting, because it brought a new dynamic to this conversation of like, how we adopt the digital age and and how fast it's going to be and when we can kind of ditch physical media and everything. And usually the question's always framed around internet speeds, right? We talk about how like, especially here in the U.S., it's like, yeah, if you live in like a city or a, or a densely populated area, you usually have pretty great internet. But if you live in like the middle of nowhere America, you usually get that super shit internet. And and so a lot of people out there, you know, they don't, they don't buy digital games because they don't want to spend the next two weeks trying to download a game when they could just go out to Walmart and buy the game for 60 bucks, pop it in, update it, and play the game that night. So I totally get framing the argument from that perspective, and it's interesting. But what this what this information tells me is something new about digital download, the adoption of digital download sales that we haven't really quite considered. And 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 this is at least how I interpret it. Capcom as a publisher is a pretty mature publisher, right? They cater largely to the Asian market, of course, being a Japanese developer and publisher. But then, so that's one thing, and that's a market that, as far as we know, is it's pretty, you know, forward-facing with, like, with like adopting digital over physical and things like that. But more important than that, or, or more notable than that, I'll say, is that, you know, Capcom is a publisher slash developer that does a lot of mature titles, right? Think about their games like Monster Hunter and Resident Evil and all these things. They're, like, M-rated games, right? And... It's like, well, that means the majority of their buyers are probably young adults and older, right? You know, not so many, not, not so much like little kids and things like that. So if I'm looking into this too much, maybe I am, but the way I'm reading this is adults who buy their own games and who are, you know, old enough to play M-rated content and things like that vastly or predominantly choose digital over physical sales. And what I mean by that is, you know, we look at like Sony talking about 50, 60% digital and Nintendo talking about 50% digital. It's like, well, because 
Nintendo, you think about a Nintendo game, it's like, well, yeah, you sell to all the little snot-nosed 27-year-olds who are like, oh, I grew up playing Legend of Zelda, so Breath of the Wild is the best game ever made. But it's like, it's more than that. It's also like, well, Nintendo's not just selling to that guy because Nintendo's also selling to like the 12-year-old who's never played a Zelda game before. And so mom buys him it for his birthday or Christmas, and now he's got Zelda. And those games are usually sold physically. So with Nintendo, there's a lot more factors where you're like, their games are so all ages. They're like the Disney of video games, right? So it's like, you know, a new Mario comes out, a new Zelda comes out, a new Animal Crossing comes out. You got everything from like blue haired millennials to like little kids who've never played the thing before to like grandmas. So you have just such a, a wealth and a diversity of your demographic that there's just so many types of people who would buy your game depending on where they live, their age, all these kinds of things. And that's why you get this mix of physical and digital sales and you end up with something closer to like a 50, 60%. But then you look at something like Capcom, you know, Capcom's not selling Resident Evil 3 remake to the 27 year old guy who doesn't actually play games, but every now and then picks up like a Nintendo game here or there and, and, and you know, whatever, like that's not who Capcom's for. And Capcom's not selling to like the, like the eight year old boy who wants Mario Kart, you know, Capcom is not selling to grandma who just wants to Zen out and play animal crossing for a couple hours a week, you know? That's Capcom is pretty specifically targeting a hardcore gamer market, probably predominantly male, like 18 to 34. It's like that very specific demographic is who Capcom serves. And so what that tells me is that the hardcore gaming market, the typical like adult male market is really heavily skewing towards digital over physical. And I mean, obviously there's a lot of assertion and assumption in, in everything I just said, but that's kind of how I'm reading this. And, you know, I'm sure I'm wrong in a lot of ways with what I just said. Um, but the point being is that in a general sense, what that shows is that you're more hardcore, you're more traditional, like, quote unquote gamer audience is going really hard into the digital market because again, that's who, that's who buys Capcom. You're not selling Capcom to like fucking Twitch streamer. I play Sims kid. You're like, you're selling, you're selling Capcom games to like, like I play fucking like gory M rated hardcore gamer games. And you know, people who fucking go to PAX East and shit like that, that's who's buying Capcom. So it's just, it's a different, it's a different, it's a publisher that's almost almost entirely caters to a specific market as opposed to something like a Sony or a Nintendo where they have more of a general evergreen market. And I think it's interesting to see that kind of carved out piece of like, well, interesting to see how the gamers are really, you know, the quote unquote gamers are really adopting the digital market. Whereas it seems like, you know, just if we can just make a bunch of blind assertions without some more data that we would need to really draw proper conclusions, it seems like, the, the physical media is not only just, you know, people who live in areas with certain types of internet speeds, but it's also just like your more casual gamers, your younger gamers, you know, and I think younger gamers make up for a large portion of it, right? It's, you think about the number of people who get games as the like gifts, who like people buy games for them. I know you can buy like Xbox store cards and things like that, but like most people get games by as gifts because like someone went to a store, bought a physical copy and gifted it to someone. And, and I know there's other ways to gift, including like you can go on your Xbox, buy a game and gift it to your friend. It shows up in a message. But like, I, I don't know. That, that's how I'm reading this. So I just thought that was a really interesting thing. I could be entirely wrong. I don't think there's enough statistics or evidence or facts there to really fully back what I was saying. But that's just kind of my inference based on what we already knew and what we just learned there. Uh, so that's going to do it for all of our big no news stories. 
now we'll jump through our quick little important enough news stories, stories important enough to make the podcast, but not important enough to warrant their own discussion. Of which our first one is that from Windows Central, Microsoft's Flight Simulator has now been set for an August 18th release date, marking the arrival of its next cloud-powered entry into the world of virtual aviation. A host into... A hotly anticipated entry uh, tackles this uh, simulation genre with unparalleled scale, leveraging in-house satellite data and uh, AI to create a faithful representation of the globe. Further layered uh, with foliar further layered with foliage mapping, real-time weather, and uh, other external sources. It's positions Flight Simulator as one of Microsoft's conceptually ambitious projects uh, on the horizon. Microsoft Flight Simulator Standard Edition will ship with 20 planes and 30 hair- handcrafted and 30 handcrafted airports available for 60 bucks through Xbox Game Pass subscription as well. Uh, or Microsoft also is offering a deluxe edition for 90 bucks that comes with an additional five planes and airports, um, while the premium deluxe grants 10 further planes and airports for 120 bucks. So for all you fucking nerds, go spend 120 bucks on some fake airplanes. Uh, next, we've got Yakuza Kiwami 2 has been announced for a July 30th release date on the Xbox One and will, of course, be launching into Game Pass per Xbox's deal with Sega to bring the first two Yakuza games plus Yakuza 0 to Xbox in 2020. Next, we got the WWE 2K Battlegrounds will launch on Xbox One on September 18, 2020. And finally, indie game publisher, if you can even call that a thing, uh, Devolver Digital has held their direct digital presentation this past week where they announced a handful of new games of all their announcements the only one that pertains to xbox is carry on which uh, releases on july 23rd the same day as the xbox first party event the game has players take the role of horror creatures that destroy human that destroys humans uh, while many other games were shown during the event only carry on is is currently planned to come to xbox one although who knows if any of the other announced titles will ever come to xbox one shadow warrior 3 was announced and that's a pretty likely uh, one to, to come over all right and now with all that done we will jump into the new game releases on xbox for this week i believe there are 15 new game releases sorry this post was kind of buried here on xbox wire this week but we will jump through them real quick uh just kind of rattle them off our first one here is one dog story coming july 13th and is xbox one x enhanced this is a game about one dog who is actually the second dog of a twin pair of dogs unfortunately the first twin died in in in, in utero um but Fortunately enough, this this one dog that that survived is equipped with a gun and will now seek vengeance on the murderer of its twin dog uh, brother. Um, but what little does one dog know, as he will learn in his story, one dog story, is that is that there is no direct enemy uh, who caused the loss of his of his brother, unless you count his mother's uh, obsessive drinking during her pregnancy to be a, uh, a physical, tangible en- enemy. So that's coming out pretty soon. We get, Next, we got Rocket Arena coming July 14th. Rocket Arena allows you to take rockets into the arena uh, in a world where where simply sporting arenas across across the world no longer allow you to bring rockets in rocket arena allows you to exist in an alternate world where rockets are allowed into sporting arenas so you can go watch a major league baseball or national football or soccer or whatever it is you like and you are more than welcome to bring your rocket into it you can you can you can fill your rocket with rockets if you like or you can fill it with something a little more benign like water or that might break it but you can you can even fill it with a silly string 
Union, shoot your rockets in many different ways throughout the arena, Rocket Arena. Our next game here is called Neon Abyss, which is a game where you play as a as a, as a Neon Abyss is a game that takes you into my mind where there are bright colors and, and pretty sights, uh, but it is just an empty, dark void of nothing. It is also an 8-bit because I hate myself and I just want to see everything in 8-bit all the fucking time, even though I bitch and moan about it. And then our next game here is called Ultra Hat Dimensions, coming July 15th. Ultra Hat Dimensions is a game where you play as a blob uh, where only about half the fucking characters actually wear a hat. Uh, the rest of them have wings like fucking birds, but apparently uh, hats and wings are just interchangeable in this dimension. Uh, which is why the game is called Ultra Hat Dimension, where we transcend our conception, our, our limited and uh, narrow-minded conception of what a hat can be, and we start al allowing other other headwear uh, into the vernacular and into our concept of, of, of a hat. This includes wings on the top of your head. This, include, this includes bows on your, on your hair. This includes headbands and stars on your head, and that is what Ultra Hot Dimension is all about. Our next game is called Oblitz. This is a game about farming. The only problem is all your farming equipment has broken because the neighborhood dog got loose and chewed through all the hosing wires. So uh, with uh, with nothing else to water your plants with and with a scorching summer on the horizon, you must take your super soaker water gun and water all the plants with that with that gun. It is not a first-person shooter, though, uh, because that would be too much fun. So you're going to play the third-person perspective because I guess maybe, I don't know, fucking Naughty Dog's developing this game. Our next game is called Res Please. Coming July 15th, Res Please is a game where you take on the role of one of the 8-bit anime boys, and you can tell he's anime because even though he's an 8-bit character, his eyes are fucking massive, and his hair is spiky. So Res Please is stuck in a dungeon, and his objective is to, uh, is to resurrect uh, a higher quality... Uh, a graphic fidelity so that he can so that he can show off his amazing anime hair and anime body in a perfect 3D environment so that he can transcend from a Final Fantasy 6 level of detail to a Final Fantasy level a 15 level of detail so that he can ditch his uh, dungeon and sword in favor for a, uh, a boy band jacket and a, and, a, and a sports car and then our next game here is called hashtag fun time which is Basically, just uh, one of those like Geometry War games. It's Xbox One X Enhanced. It comes out July 16th, and you are allowed to shoot things. Fun hashtag Fun Time is basically named after an arcade because it looks like an arcade game. And then our next game here is called Forager, uh, which is coming out July 16th. Forager is a game where you play as a uh, as a millennial who simply refuses to get off their lazy ass and get a job and says, well, because my because my country sucks and I refuse to become an active part of it politically, I'm actually just going to start foraging and, and for berries and such and, and try to live off the land. And so you, as a millennial with your duck beak face and, and you go out into the woods and you level up and you and you collect various seeds and you plant them into the ground and you watch them grow and they call you the forager our next game here is called never song which comes out july 16th it's xbox one x enhanced where you play as a bird this bird is never song because it's so fucking fat this bird is so goddamn fat that it can't sing because when it tries to sing it gets short breathed and short-winded because it's just too fucking fat to sing 
And that is why, uh, you know, as they say, listen to the birdie sing this song, this bird in particular ain't singing shit because it is a fat sack of sorry shit. And then our next game here is called Radical Rabbit Stew, where you play as a rabbit. And you may think this is a game where you play as a rabbit trying to avoid being t- captured and turned into stew. It is actually quite the opposite, where, where in this game you play as the rabbit trying to get through obstacles and platforming challenges and mazes in an effort to get into the stew pot and, and kill yourself because you just want nothing more than to be put out of your misery and out of this miserable rabbit world in which people uh, uh, would, 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 would make rabbit stew. So you're just going to fucking give in and, and, and end it all now while you're ahead. And then our next game here is called um, Bounty Battle, which is a game where you play as... Uh, as a shovel knight basically but it's 2.5d instead of a sprite based game and bounty battle you take a sword and you go into dungeons and you kill innocent trolls in fact you think they're goblins you think they're enemies but they're really just old homeless men and you're beating them senselessly with a shovel so no you're not a cool twist on the shovel knight formula you're just a really big asshole and then our next game here is called we should talk which is a game where some fucking hippie looking chick it goes into this coffee neon bar looking place and there's some fucking like a a fucking Silicon Valley looking motherfucker with nerdy hair and nerdy glasses looking down at this girl's chest. And I'm thinking, why does this girl want to talk to you about anything when you're just staring at her boobs? And also your coffee's getting cold on the counter there, buddy. You might as well drink it up and stop being a goddamn pervert. Uh, We Should Talk is the game... Uh, my ex-girlfriend recommended me right before she broke up with me and I highly recommend it. Our next game is called Super Hot Mind Control Delete. Super Hot Mind Control Delete is super hot but instead of playing it in VR, instead of playing it with a controller, you just play it with your mind and it sucks because what we found out is that the human mind is not compatible with the Xbox One. It does not have uh, the correct Bluetooth technology and therefore the game is basically unplayable. And then our final game, just kidding, almost final game is called Dunk Lords. Dunk Lords is actually not a basketball game despite what you think dunk lords is literally a game about taking donuts and dunking them into your coffee and trying to get the highest score by uh, calorie counting and eating the most uh, donuts possible dunked in coffee and then our next game here final game is warhammer 40k mechanics mechanicus mechanicus this is a warhammer game where you play um actually as the warhammer rather than playing as a faction of enemy or a type of skeleton class or or machine you play as the warhammer the warhammer is basically fucking useless because without anyone to wield the hammer it basically just sits there so you can try and move the warhammer but it's not sentient it doesn't move it doesn't have arms it doesn't have a mind of its own it's just a stupid weapon laying there on the ground it is quite literally the worst warhammer game ever made and it can be all yours on july 17th when it releases and that's going to do it for all of our game releases this week guys thank you so much for listening all the way through to the end yes this week's podcast was just as long as last week so fuck me but now we are going to um be played out from some music from from our buddy eric here remember as always guys please 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 rate the show on itunes five stars only leave me nice comments follow me on twitter i will be tweeting from the sonic the hedgehog twitter account this week uh, convincing people to drop everything and play Sonic Unleashed because they were wrong if they thought that that game was anything shy of greatness. And also, remember to download your games with gold games this week. They are still on there. You still have you still have WRC 8 for the rest of the month. You still have Dunk Lords available until August 15th. Saints Row 2, you missed it. Juju, you got that until the end of the month on 360 side, so be sure and download those games. Thank you all so much for listening. Remember, guys, power your dreams.